Okie dokie. Good evening. We are back. Hello, Richard. Hey, how are you? All right. What's on your mind? Uh, nothing much. I just, and I just. All right, let's in the room. Huh? All right, let's in the room. Bye. Wait, why? I'm I'm kidding because you said nothing much was on your mind. Oh, okay, yeah. No, I got a I got a stomach pain. Really? So I just yeah. So I just you ever like get sick and then just make yourself throw up? <laughs> uh, kind of. You sh- you sort of allow yourself to cajole it out, or you think that if you get at least a vomit out, then that'll sort of solve whatever the issue is. Yeah, I think it might have solved. That. It's only been like a minute, but I, yeah. Hopefully. So you vomited within minutes of joining this call in. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was. Wow, exactly. it's an, it's an, that's an honor. That's, that's my routine. That's how I prepare, actually. Every every time, <laughs> you're so nervous. <laughs> yeah, nerves. Pre, yeah, pre-show jitters. All right. Well, um, that's an exciting starting point for this discussion. We know that Richard is fresh from a vomit. Episode, so that really it'll add like an additional uh, an additional layer of intrigue to our. Yeah, we'll see how I feel as this goes on. Did you? uh, uh, So I don't know the brother balloon thing. Did you read the? I just saw the headlines. I didn't read the article. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I just I just looked into it within the past um, hour or two. I don't know. It's odd. Apparently, Biden convenes military officials to submit options for responding to the apparent or purported weather balloon or spy balloon. I don't know if it's a weather balloon or a spy balloon. They're calling it a spy balloon. At least some people are, but I don't have enough detail really to make any firm determination myself about what the heck the thing is. Um, But uh, Millie, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, recommended not shooting it down because it was large enough that it could be a danger to uh, people on the ground or property on the ground, and so it's not being shot down. But they apparently um, grounded air traffic in the area for like an hour in Montana yesterday. Um, but I don't know. It, one thing that they, is noted in these pieces is that the reconnaissance systems on the balloon are presumed to have, quote, limited additive value beyond which the Chinese could gather from their low Earth orbit satellites. So I'm not clear on what, if anything, distinguishes this as so much more incredibly dangerous than the types of satellites that are orbiting the Earth, including North America constantly, including by the U.S. And also, I, I would note, I hadn't seen this at the time, but people sent it to me. In July of last year, there was a report uh, in Politico citing Pentagon budgetary documents where essentially there's a fledgling new program that the Pentagon is running for uh, high-altitude surveillance balloons, specifically for use against China and Russia to better monitor um, their hypersonic uh, weapons production. So, uh, you know, apparently this is going to be a new... uh, thing now from quote both sides so who knows yeah okay seems sort of stupid i mean it seems like uh, i mean it seems like it's a uh 
it seems like, did you see this weird story about like, it was like South Dakota or something. They were going to, some Chinese wanted to invest in some kind of like wheat mill or something. And like, like they're trying to, they shut it down because it's like a national security threat. Yeah. You know, this was an issue, um, within the past year or so, I think it's South Dakota, might be North Dakota, one of the two, one of the Dakotas. And, um, In the Senate race from whichever Dakota it was, I think it was South Dakota, actually. It became like one of the top issues last year where, you know, the candidates were uh, out competing to uh, declare who was going to be most aggressive in preventing Chinese acquisitions of land in uh, uh, areas that are proximate to, uh, you know, American military installations. So, yeah, this has sort of been sort of a meme, and particularly like within right-wing media for a while now, uh, and among right-wing politicians. I'm not saying it's entirely baseless as to the factual uh, claims. Uh, it's hard to really tell. Um, but, you know, they'll try to at least make it out to be that if anybody who is – if any, like, firm that could be said to be uh, tangentially connected to the China, China, Communist Party of China purchases – purchases land in the United States or it's like alleged to have holdings in the United States, that's like a giant national security risk. And so you've seen states, especially Republican-leaning states um, or Republican-controlled states kind of enact measures relatively recently to at least ostensibly uh, prevent the Communist Party of China from gobbling up all this land so they can, I don't know, encroach upon American sovereignty or something. Yeah. I mean, the Republicans really, they love the China stuff. They really don't have a lot going on. I saw that they're going to, the Biden's going to do the state of the union and the response is going to be Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I'm just wondering like what message is like, Sarah, what's she known for? Like, you know, is there anything she's known for other than being, uh, uh, you know, Trump's, uh, uh, what was she, press secretary or something? Um, you know, it's true. It's, they really don't have nothing. So like foreign policy is sort of their, their happy place. They can demagogue You're, uh, I think you're, uh, I don't know, I heard a bunch of scratching and then your voice sort of faded. Uh, uh, this is, hold on a second. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't know, like, they're, they're, they're based, you know, if you look at, like, the, the base of, like, the stuff that they're into, if you follow sort of these, like, right-wing events, that's getting, like, weird. Um, and they really don't have anything, I think, that they think that they can, like, appeal to, like, a real mainstream audience. So, yeah, the China thing seems to be, like, you know, something they're really holding on to recently. Yeah, uh, Marjorie, Taylor, Marjorie Taylor Green put out a tweet within the past two hours saying that the Chinese spy balloon ought to be shot down immediately. <laughs> it's like, do you have any... <laughs> Any additional information about the nature of this supposed Chinese spy balloon so we can evaluate whether shooting it down and, like, undertaking kinetic warfare against the Chinese state, uh, allegedly, is um, a great idea? Or are you just, like, content to go on limited information and then just, you know, act like uh, Yosemite Stam and start blasting away? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, what about the um, the, the article you sent me from Rand. I, I mean, I skimmed it. Did you Did you read it? Yeah, I read it. I did a, a, a thread on it um, last weekend, and it's pretty interesting. I mean, what's interesting, or like one of the things that's interesting about it is that, at least if you read between the lines somewhat, uh, 
Or if you go based on the sort of logical inferences that are made within this RAND Corporation study or paper, a lot of what is concluded would get pretty much anybody else accused of being a you know Russian plant or sympathizer or agent or whatever in most other contexts because among other things, and this is the um, RAND Corporation, which is like the Pentagon subsidized sort of like quasi-in-house think tank it's been around for decades. Um, this was a study that came out within the past uh, week or two called Avoiding a Long War, U.S. Policy and the Trajectory of the Russia-Ukraine Conflict. Um, one of the conclusions is that the chief impediment, or one of the chief impediments anyway, to ending the conflict and avoiding a long war, which the RAND authors conclude is adverse to American interests, and this whole article is about evaluating potential trajectories of the conflict specifically by reference to what they say is most in the interest of the United States, which is a particular frame of reference um, that some might not also be using to evaluate the conflict, but this is their frame for this particular article. And they said that the chief impediment to ending the Ukraine war is, quote, the centrality of Western assistance. Because, they say... Because Ukraine's power is so heavily dependent on an unpredictable outside factor, meaning Western assistance, quote-unquote, um, it complicates or skews the perceptions of both warring parties as to what their likelihood for victory is. Because the thesis here is that um, a settlement or – a, uh, some sort of resolution to the war is probably only going to be possible if there's more certainty or if there's more of a consensus um, between the two sides about which one is likely to prevail. And both Ukraine and Russia, as of this juncture, have vastly different views as to who is likely to prevail. And the reason why those views are so divergent, it's suggested, is because the centrality of the Western backing of Ukraine kind of uh, adds a variable that is very, um, very complicating and distort distortive uh, because, you know, Ukraine thinks that it can win if it gets all the Western assistance that it needs and the Western assistance is going to be coming. And so they're very confident in their ability to achieve total victory, whatever that means exactly. Whereas Russia is confident that, you know, Western assistance is going to dissipate and it can't you know, last forever at this rate. And so it just has to kind of wait it out. And then that means once it's once it dries up, meaning the Western assistance, Russia will be able to prevail. And so because of those uh, divergent perspectives due to the centrality of Western assistance, they can't even like come to any sort of mutual agreement on what the likely outcome is in terms of who, which side is best positioned to win. And so uh, in that context, they're not even uh, a, they're not even able to approach the beginnings of thinking about some sort of brokered agreement to uh, cease the hostilities. So that's one of the main takeaways of the article anyway. And it's just amazing because I mean, imagine if the New York Times ran a 
that identified U.S. slash NATO quote-unquote assistance to Ukraine as the chief impediment of bringing about a resolution to the war or a chief reason why the war was going to protract and cause, you know, a vast amount of death and destruction. Could you imagine what the response would be? I mean, even if, even if you just tweet that out, I mean, it's like a huge scandal, right? Or it, it gets you rained down on with accusations of being pro-Putin or whatever, of course. Um, but here's you know, the Pentagon's in-house think tank um, putting out that observation. And they do it with, you know, kind of a sterile uh, language, so a non-polemical language that makes maybe people gloss over the implications of what they're saying. Um, or at least not fully flesh them out. Uh, but, you know, that's what it's clearly stated here that, you know, an impediment to the end, a chief impediment to ending the conflict is the mutual optimism about the course of the war. And the, that optimism is being fed into by this quote, Western assistance. So that's just what they say. And, uh, you gotta wonder, um, why is it that you can make a claim like that in the context of a research paper or, you know, a Paper, a theory paper published by the Pentagon's in-house think tank. And I'm oversimplifying when I call the Rand Corporation that, but that's you know a fairly uh, a fairly accurate approximation of what it is. Why can you say it in that context, but you can't say it in like m- Congress? You know, um, yeah, just something to uh, ponder. Do they make recommendations about that? They could say because it's uncertain. Yeah, the aid. They could they say something like give the give more aid and make it more certain. Um, well, I mean, they say that uh, there are several recommendations or several pop- possible remedies that they give. You know, one is to, you know, condition aid or condition support on the, you know, resumption of negotiations by Ukraine or um, be more clear as to what the intended um, objective is to be achieved by the provision of this aid. Or, you know, just make some alteration to the policy so it's not just an open-ended supply of conditions-free assistance to Ukraine. Um, and they say there are like a bunch of different uh, ways that that could be formulated. So it doesn't give like a, f- a firm, definitive, con- conclusory sort of recommendation as to what could best be uh, pursued to change that sort of dynamic now where it's this mutual optimism that's kind of fueling a long war. Um, but yeah, even that just that, that one tentative suggestion about conditioning aid, conditioning further aid on resumption of negotiations um, or at least pursuit of negotiations by Ukraine, even that would be a non-starter in so many different contexts. So it's really hard to know where there's going to be much receptivity to much of what they uh, outline here. And uh I mean, you got to think that some people will, will read this in positions of power, but um, until it translates into like a, a shift in the public perception or like a public public discourse, um, the uh, the impact seems like it's probably going to be somewhat limited. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, Rand Rand does this kind of stuff. It has you know different viewpoints. It has different analysis. Sounds like this paper is sort of a, trying to nudge into the. Nego- you know, to try to push people into negotiation side. It's not always, doesn't always matter for policy. Like, you know, Congress doesn't have to listen to Rand. Congress doesn't have to care uh, what the Rand Corporation 
says, uh, so, you know, it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting data point. Um, will anything come of it? Yeah, probably not. But it's, I mean, it's a sign that there's some sort of diversity of opinion within, within the military circles. Yeah. Um, so uh, what do you make of this whole uh, apparent broadening of the sort of geographic uh, remit of the war to include Iran potentially? I mean, uh, Blinken was in uh, Israel this week, uh, met with Netanyahu. You have these allusions to the um, drone strikes in Iran last weekend being connected to Iran providing um, or being sent to provide anyway the technology or maybe not the drones themselves but the technology. I mean, they don't really specify what it is that Iran is providing. It's apparently not the drones themselves but maybe the technology to Russia. I don't know. Um, but whatever their role is vis-a-vis no, Russia. I thought, I thought they were giving them the, they're giving them the drones. Like the drones themselves, right? But I've seen I've seen sort of conflicting reports. Are they actually sending the drones themselves, or are they providing yeah, technology to Russia to produce so Russia can itself produce the drones? I don't I've heard, know. I've heard both. Uh, they said that yeah, it's, yeah. So uh, whatever, whatever it is, um, you know, there was the, there were those drone strikes over the weekend on a you know production military production facility in in Iran, and. Um, you know, if the first report I saw as to the culpability for that attack was from a Saudi media outlet, and, you know, I can't really vouch for the veracity of that particular outlet, but it's one of the, you know, more, I guess, mainline media outlets in Saudi Arabia, and it did quote, it did um, allege based on an American military source, which they're going to have a, quite a few of in the country, in Saudi Arabia, right? Um, they allege that the U.S., carried out the attack in conjunction with another unnamed country. Um, shortly after that, uh, the Wall Street Journal and uh, was the first to report that it was Israel who carried out the drone strike. And then just yesterday, or the day before, I saw another report uh, from a, a media outlet that covers uh, mostly Iran in English, based in the U.K., that said that um, there are high-level officials in Tehran who believe that one of the prime culprits for carrying out the drone strike attack was actually Ukraine. Um, so how none would, of that precludes some that? sort of multilateral uh, effort. They had Iran with a drone? That I have no idea. That doesn't I mean, sound likely. I don't know. Um I mean, I, they, they seem to have a pretty adventurous special forces unit or units um, who carry out, you know, like car bomb attacks and, you know, uh, the assassination, truck, uh, you know, explosion attack on the daughter of uh, Dugan. Remember that? Um, there have been bombings in Crimea and stuff. So, I mean, who, yeah. who knows? I mean, they could have some complementary or supplementary role, right, um, without it necessarily being them themselves executing the attack. I mean, it could be some multilateral thing with that includes Ukraine, the U.S., and Israel. Who knows? Um, but, you know, Netanyahu sort of alluded to this, uh, you know, without much real specificity in an interview with um, Jake Tapper on CNN yesterday, where, or uh, Tuesday, where he says, um, 
Israel, frankly, acts in ways that I will, I will not itemize here against Iran's weapons productions, which are used against Ukraine. So there's been like pressure, and you know, Blinken himself reiterated this uh, during his uh, press conference in Israel. There's been pressure being exerted by the U.S. on Israel to sort of up its support for Ukraine in some fashion. Ukraine, Israel is thought to be resistant to providing kind of overt weapons provision to Ukraine because of the dynamic between itself and, and Russia. Then all of a sudden, you know, the minute that the biggest joint exercises between the U.S. and Israel ever last week uh, stop, uh, you have this raft of, you know, drone strike attacks throughout uh, Iran. And the... Um, and the origin or the genesis of those attacks are so somewhat unclear and nobody will confirm anything. And uh, even this guy, uh, one of the chief uh, advisors to the presidential office of Ukraine, uh, you know, chief advisor to Zelensky, he, he makes another sort of hint, hint, wink, wink um, statement alluding to this somehow being retribution for uh, Iran's support of Russia. Which leads to now a back and forth between, with with Iran saying that they're going to, you know, retribute uh, to uh, Iran saying they're going to retaliate likewise against Ukraine for this illusion of Ukraine being responsible for the drone strike. I mean, uh, well, a lot of the ambiguity here, obviously, but it seems like it's a potential uh, expansion of the war's sort of purview to include a new theater. Uh, at least maybe indirectly uh, in the Middle East, which is kind of what you would not want to happen if you were trying to avoid the kind of, uh, you know, ineluctable sort of uh, escalation of the war into some sort of kind of interlocking global conflict that can't really be unwound um, because you have just these multiple sort of vectors of it that keep kind of uh, intensifying toward one, into one toward one direction, which is kind of heightened conflict. Yeah, but th th this didn't do a lot of damage, did it? I mean, I think it was a... Did it? I mean, it, it's like it damaged the roof of the building, according to the Iranians. Like, did the, did the West even claim that it did a lot? Yeah, I mean, there were, there were, you know, there were competing claims in terms of what level of destruction it caused. Of course, you know, the official Iran sources claimed it didn't do much damage at all. Um... First of all, there, there, there seemed like there were multiple attacks, not just the one attack at that one facility, but there were multiple attacks reported at the time beyond just that one facility. I don't know if that's confirmed or not. Again, it's hard to say given how much secrecy is around these things. Um, but, uh, you know, there was simultaneously a report in Israeli media quote, quoting all these Western sources that it was actually caused extensive damage and that you know, the operation went spectacularly well. And, you know, that was just the Iran claiming that it was minor and just damaged the roof somewhat. It's just a cover. So who knows? Um, but we do know that some sort of attack took place. Yeah. The uh, Iranians, I mean, I think it was, uh, I think that you, you talk about expanding into a global war. I think, you know, I think the thinking is that the Iranians, their options for heading back are limited. I think when Soleimani uh, got killed. And their sort of their response was, you know, they fired like twenty five missiles of like a an American airbase or something, um, and that was you know the extent of it. And you know, killing Soleimani, you know, their, their national hero, uh, was a pre, you know pretty big it was a pretty big deal. I think people really didn't think it was like really a proportionate response. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think the Iranians have made a difference in this war by providing drones to the Russians. I think the thinking is probably like, you know, what really can they do, right? Well, I mean, you know, there were reports that there were Iranian military advisors on the ground in Crimea. So, you know, as of a couple months ago, so if true, that would mean that there were actual, you know, boots on the ground from yeah. an, uh, from another well, that's, that's country it, right? acting as some sort of co-combatant or co-belligerent in the war. So even if Iran itself cannot maybe do all that much in terms of offensive warfare or something into, uh, against the against Ukraine or its Western you know yeah. sponsors, it's still yeah, it just kind of you know, broadens the, the parameters of the war in a way that kind of makes yeah. adds an additional variable of chaos and sort of, uh, you know, multi-directional conflict that could spiral into a, uh, into like another sort of, uh, phase of, uh, warfare that we're, that, you know, it's not, it's going to be difficult to sort of, again, wind back up. Yeah. But I mean, they're on the, they're on the, um, they're on the ground in Crimea, right? The question is what war could they, because they go somewhere else in Ukraine. I mean, is that going to be that big of a difference? I think the, I think the thinking is sort of the Iranian, support for russia here is pretty much like I think people are shocked I, I don't think people Iran was really this kind of sort of a drone superpower that iran would have like you know uh these you know this technology that russia could find useful we usually see russia as like a first you know first grade military power and iran a second or third rate military power so i think people a lot of people are surprised that like iran has like you know missiles and uh drones to spare to Russia and they're of high quality enough that they uh, can be useful. Uh, and so I guess the question is, what could Iran do if you hit them back for that, right? So there's a reaction and then there's, you know, a counter reaction to what the Iranians are doing. And I think if they're hitting Iran, it's sort of, it's sort of like the question is like, what are they, you know, what could Iran escalate at the next point? It's not clear that Iran has a, you know, clear option. Yeah. I guess you know be, beyond what Iran is capable of capable of tactically, the political dimensions of this are interesting because it used to be for quite some time that the most zealous anti-Iran sort of uh, factions of the United States were right-wing. Um, maybe you could call them neocon. I know that's a vague label now, but, you know, associated with the most sort of zealously interventionist factions of the Republican Party, um, strongly, quote-unquote, pro-Israel, because they agree with the common sort of, you know, Netanyahu-style viewpoint that uh, Iran is an existential threat to Israel and needs to therefore be destroyed with its regime regime overthrown in order for Israel to have, uh, you know, security in the long term. Um, and it does seem that there's been a shift there because over the past several months, with Iran being linked to Russia more and more, um, you have more and more of a left or liberal appetite to kind of buy into the same interventionist or pro-regime pr- change program as used to be primarily associated with the uh, hardcore right. Um, because they're seen as now antagonists in this broader kind of struggle against uh, fascism or authoritarianism in the form of the Ukraine war. Um, Layered on top of that is how (coughs) 
uh, Iran being this um, oppressor of women has been the central emphasis given its, uh, you know, ostensible crackdown. And I say ostensible only because I haven't been able to confirm or haven't done the work of confirming with much um, precision like what exactly has gone has happened with this supposed crackdown of protests over the past couple months in Iran. I'm sure there have been plenty of um, excesses, but, you know, whether it rises to the level of this um, shocking world-altering sort of uh, state repression that it gets cast to be, I don't know. Um, but Iran is seen as like the enemy of women's rights and women's liberation. And for some reason, this justifies mm-hmm. regime change in Iran or yeah, whatever. Jordan Peterson. You see that? Yeah. Like, uh, well, yeah, Peterson. you know, Jordan Peterson now is on that, on that train. I know that uh, people were talking because I, I found this clip where people, somebody mentioned to me that he did a podcast not too long ago on Iran. And so I uh, was not going to sit down and listen to that whole hour and a half of him talking to some like screeching Iran, Iranian woman. Uh-huh. Talking about was it, was uh, you know, clamoring for regime change. The, what was it? The Iranian woman with the hair, the one who just always talking about her hair. Um, I think it was a different woman. I think it was so someone else. Like, oh, so, who Jay Nordlinger? Have you ever heard this guy at National Review named Jay Nordlinger? Yeah, I know him. Yep. So he wrote an article about her hair. He's like, she takes out her hair, and you look at this oppressive nation that would like repress this hair, and it just what? like. <laughs> This article, this guy is a really big weirdo, and I, you know, I saw him on Twitter once. He he blocked me. I never he blocked me. Yeah, he blocked me too. He blocked yeah, me over something to do with Trump. I forget now. I don't think I ever interacted with him, but I've been reading him actually for like fifteen years, and he's always been a goofball. When uh, William Buckley died, I remember he wrote a uh, like a, he wrote like in a column where he's like, oh, uh, you know, he would sit there with you, and he was like an angel. But he wasn't a man. He was an angel, and he wasn't quite a man. He wasn't quite an angel. He was a ma- He was a man slash angel. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? A angel. A man. A man. <laughs> yeah. So this guy is a, been a goofball. Yeah, I remember like him having time. like weird, overly emotional sort of outbursts with regard to Trump earlier on, like when Trump was. You know, on course to win the Republican nomination in 2016, and then a bit of a, a bit onward from that, like Jay would always pop up, having some sort of like weirdly excessive emotional response to stuff that was happening. I can't give you any hard examples, but that's my memory of it. Yeah, yeah, and so uh, yeah, so Peterson, you were saying. Wait, so he's praising this woman's hair. Uh, it, it, so it's like when you know, you know, black women in the United States have this whole sort of like running genre of commentary on how <laughs> they can't have their natural hair like i mean i'm not doubting that it's true or nobody, or people don't i don't know like their, or people don't like their hair I think it's or like they are or, or, or how people touch their hair and stuff yeah because uh-huh. they're just curious which okay maybe that happens i don't know but it's just funny for that now to have been uh imported into this uh bizarre oh, context of jay norgan or whatever yeah, his name is a, praising the yeah, hair yeah. of these uh you know like state department back you know, Iranian women dissidents who are like on PR tours across yeah. the U.S. to lobby yeah, for the no, My my heart bleeds for the you know the Iranian woman. I, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a good I don't think it's a good system. You're 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 uh, right that Jordan Peterson is is sort of a goofball. So he did a podcast like an hour and a half. You're saying with this uh, with this Iranian woman. Yeah, let me uh, let me figure it out. What uh, let me uh, who it was because I was not about to sit there and listen to all ninety minutes of the, of the screeching and of the platitudes. So I did what it was a useful tactic. Now, which is you can rip the MP the audio from the video 
and then upload it into your transcription service, which I use Otter, which is very good. It's like a lifesaver. I mean, it's amazing how much... I mean, the one unambiguous technological improvement that's actually been for the good in the past, I don't know, 10 years... Um, you know, for so forget the smartphone, which you can make different arguments for or whatever else. It's just trans- transcription technology. Because mm-hmm. one of the worst, absolute worst things about doing journalism, you know, when I, when I first started, so like, I don't know, say you know, 2009 to 2013 or something, was just the tedium of having to transcribe stuff. And now it's like not, that problem has been almost like 90% you know what's solved. Funny? I, I try to do it for my own podcast. I try to like do and it can't, it doesn't get me. It can get other people like in my style of talking. And I think I tried with Mark Andreessen too. And like it was his too. It like depends on pe- the person. Some people speak in like clear sentences and paragraph. And some of us like have a lot of false starts and are sort of like all over the place. So if you put like anything I'm talking about into a uh, AI thing to uh, to give you a transcript, it's going to be gibberish. You're not going to be able to get anything out of it. So I, I actually can't use it. But yeah, I know what you're saying. For other people, you can. Oh, okay. I corrected. It is that same woman? It's the woman. Yeah. Right there, how many? My mistake. It's Massa Alinejad. Um, so yeah, it is that same woman. <clears throat> and so okay. So I, I actually didn't even realize that. So it to- shows you how much research I did. Um, this woman. She's an employee of the Voice of America. Like, she's an actual U.S. government employee. I mean, uh-huh. was that disclosed in this podcast? Maybe I should have listened to the whole thing. I doubt it. Um, but, you know, this is not a woman who just is like this random Iranian dissident who's been plucked from obscurity so she can enlighten the world about how oppressive the government is. She's actually a long-term, like, you, literal employee of the U.S. government. Not, and not just the U.S. government, but its actual, like, propaganda apparatus, meaning the voice of America. I mean, that's just what she is. So it's amazing that, like, she's the one. I mean, you have to be so lazy to exalt her as this spokesperson without even noting these details of who she is for your... Uh, for your audience that is almost certainly not going to be aware. And then she's been on other media for the past couple months too, CNN, Fox, whatever, where she's also presented it in like neutral terms and there's like no qualifiers that need to be given about what her background is. Even like she's literally... So what I read from... So that U.S. Iranian government propagandist, I'm sorry to say, I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but it's true. So the Iranian protests do appear to have done some some good. I have you read that basically now they no longer enforce the hijab and they abolished basically the uh, uh, morality police. Um, um, is, yeah, I think so. I, I saw the reports they abolished the morality police. I saw like, people raising doubts as to like with the significance of that and whether it was actually abolished and how active were they anyway. Um, well, so, they yeah, say, they, well, they say in the New York Times, like, the, the hijab restrictions <coughs> sort of, uh, they've fallen apart. Like, you can go to, like, nice places, you know, the uh, nice areas in Tehran, and now, like, they don't wear the hijab where it used to, everybody uh, used to have to wear it. Uh, so, you know, the protests, they so they appear to, you know, have really made some change. Now, does that mean we're going to have regime change anytime soon? You know, no, probably not. But we've seen cases of, you know, protests, uh, the Iranian, the Chinese with the zero covid uh too um so yeah we i mean these protests weren't a complete joke well this woman i mean I, I, in october i um i put on i uh i tweeted after she had been on abc news 
um, giving updates on the protests, how she was sort of uh, molding her arguments to appeal to a broader audience because she was saying that the U.S. has to act against Iran in the same way it's, quote, acting toward Putin, um, in part because of Iran's purported support for Russia. So it wasn't just as though it were based on women's rights. It was based on just the broader geopolitical dynamics that array the United States against Iran slash Russia. Um, so she's making a, a much more expansive argument just then. Yeah. No, of course, Iran no, needs to Iran be toppled talks. because the hijab laws are too oppressive. It's like yeah. a big, the it's like a bigger Iran, ideological project. Yeah, the Iran hawks have got, and I wonder what the Iran sort of. Uh, I guess what their game is. I mean, I think that I think it's. I think the pulling out of the Trump administration really pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal and then uh, killing Soleimani. I think that probably killed any hope because when Biden came in, there was talk that they would try to. Uh, they were going to go. There was talk of going back into the Iran nuclear deal, and I thought that there was a good chance that they actually might. Um, and they've given up on that now. I mean, they're, yeah, oh, yeah. the administration that's officials tough. are public about how that's not even really on the table. Like once oh, yeah. the allegations started emerging, because there were still talks underway. I think through an intermediary, it might have been who was it? I forget now. It was through some intermediary, maybe in Europe, that there were still like tentative talks underway to sort you know uh, pursue resumption of negotiations as of last like October or November and then it really was just totally nixed with the emergence of this Iran slash Russia narrative like that that overrode it and um, kind of you know put the final uh, nail in the coffin of resuming those nuclear deal negotiations and now it seems to be totally dead Um, so yeah it's uh, and you know it wasn't just that Trump assassinated Soleimani and uh, withdrew from the nuclear deal. It's also that they they like were inventing new sanctions to put on Iran, including during the height of COVID. I mean, there was a a, a portion a, a a period in the early part of COVID, so like March April two thousand twenty, when there was like clear evidence that because of U.S. sanctions, Iran was unable to secure like basic materials that they would need for certain you know medical supplies and other sorts of services for COVID and uh, Iran like had a, a really major COVID outbreak at, at the beginning. It was one of like the most hard hit countries, at least, you know, maybe people could do it over revision is sort of uh, interpretation of whether that was true vis-a-vis COVID. But that, that was actually, that was at least what was being reported at the time. Iran had one of the most severe COVID outbreaks of the very early part of the war and they couldn't get, because of this, crippling sanctions regime or, you know, maximum pressure, they couldn't get certain medical supplies or medical treatments. You know, uh, so you had not just, so it's the, it's the sanctions as well as the assassination of Soleimani and the withdrawal of the nuclear deal and, and other stuff to, uh, that really, I kind of think kind of made it, to, put it on the point of no return in terms of, you know, resuming any sort of semblance of normal relations yeah i yeah i think so going all in with russia is sort of like iran sort of you know like you know iran has to know that there's no hope for a nuclear deal or any kind of rapprochement with the west uh after after that so yeah i mean after all that it's, it's clear that you know this is sort of it's over and i guess that their their goal is to be isolated and go all in with you know russia and then maybe Maybe China at some point. Speaking of COVID and Iran, do you know about Ron Unz's theory about uh, COVID nineteen origin? 
<laughs> no, I don't. It, it, the origins in Iran? Uh, yeah, well, he thinks he thinks that, this, that it's a very big coincidence that uh, the first country to hit was China, and then the second country really to hit with Iran. And he's saying which country doesn't like China and doesn't like Iran? Wow, isn't that isn't that convenient? And then it hit the Iranian leadership. <laughs> I don't know. It's Wait, so it was like a U.S. bioweapon against yeah, yeah, China that's, that's and then what, Iran? That's what he thinks, and he dislikes all other COVID conspiracy theories because they. Just but was the second country that was really hard hit? Iran? Because in the popular telling it was Italy. Yeah, I think it was Iran and Italy. Yeah, it was Italy that he, I guess Italy might have got hit by accident. So that doesn't fit with the theory. But the fact <laughs> that, you know, it was China. Italy is in the axis of evil. Yeah. <laughs> Iran, it was China. I thought, it, was Iran, was, it, was Italy second after Iran? I don't know. Um, I think, I, I thought, I thought Italy was second after China. I mean, I thought uh, Italy was really, like, actually, if you, in terms of which countries were really hard hit in terms of yeah. lots of death that was at least being documented, it was it was Italy was number uh, one. Uh, yeah, although it was very strange that you know Iran it hit the northern Italy in, in a way it hit the political leadership like a huge portion of like the political leadership was actually in capacity. Yeah, it's true. Or died. So yeah, he's like it really makes you think. <laughs> I'll send you I'll send you the article. He has he has some other like weird little like. Uh, uh, anomalies and like the uh, mainstream story, you know, he says like, oh, there's like a, there was like an ABC report that said like, oh, in November of 2019, um, the U.S. officials were warning of an outbreak in Wuhan. Well, November 2019, right? Nobody knew anything, right? So it was like, how would the U.S. know? Why were there? And it, it really was a report. It was like ABC News. It was like five Pentagon officials or something like that confirmed that like in November, the president was warned that in November, uh, you know, there would be, you know, there was this thing going on in China. So just a, uh, just a, I, I don't know how much I buy this. I don't, I don't really buy it, but it's just, it's just a funny theory that I enjoy reading about. Well, I um, imposed some suffering on myself a few days ago and watched this interview that Dave Rubin did with Mike Pompeo. Oh, oh my God. What his, was uh, his big podcast show. He had Mike Pompeo on, who's doing like the standard uh, book tour slash presidential exploratory tour. Yeah, um, and so he was on Dave Rubin, and um, I mean, I, you find the tweet. I just I uh, transcribed some of the uh, the text of some of the questions that Rubin asked, and they're just so embarrassing. Like I, I went to uh, I was lobbied to go to this. Um, that Amer- uh, national uh, national conservatism conference two years ago in 2021, and Ruben was like the MC of it. Oh, they tried to and, get you to go there. Um, not the uh, I mean, individual participants said I should go, so I went. Oh, I mean, you weren't like you were like invited to be like a speaker. No, I wasn't invited as a speaker. I went just as an observer. I went yeah. as an anta- slightly antagonistic observer. Ruben um, is just Ruben is just you know just uh, you know, creeping himself over these. Uh, these speeches they're giving in Congress about Ilhan Omar getting kicked off the foreign affairs. Yeah, it's just, just, you know, Ruben... He's just an ecstasy. Man, this guy but, 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 really but The idea that there was, like, this, you know, uh, really exciting intellectual sort of uh, schism on the right, and it was exemplified by this national conservatism movement was seemingly belied to me for one thing, because the big speakers at this particular conference were... Ted, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and Josh Hawley, which, I mean, 
are they like dissident conservatives now? If so, I mean, the term has no substance. And then also because there was a point where Dave Rubin was like the MC of the whole proceedings and he would just like <laughs> give the sort of dumbest, like, it's the most I'm sorry, he just thing. not, it's just not yeah. somebody who really seems like he has much of a capacity to give any sort of in-depth political thought to any issue. Um, but anyway, like, let me give you just um, some of the questions he asked Pompeo. Quote, can you give me a, like a minute or two of Mike Pompeo 101, like a little bit of your history that led you to do all these things? Um, skip forward because it's just so stupid. But, but the point, of why I, I bring this up because of the COVID questions. So he says, quote, so you were Secretary of State during COVID. That kind of changed the world. Can you talk about that a little bit? So that's his big adversarial <laughs> interview question. And Mom, like Pompeo goes on this whole tirade about how he's accusing Iran, or sorry, sorry, China of deliberately committing mass murder via COVID. Um, and so I don't know. I think uh, the next time the Republican administration gets in power, they're probably going to want vengeance for what they are claiming is China's responsibility for mass murder, even though they simultaneously claim that COVID was like not that big of a deal. Yeah. Well, I think they'll do stupid stuff. I think they'll shut down like Chinese businesses in North Dakota, like DeSantis and Trump, like Pompeo. I don't know. It'll be weird if Pompeo became president, but he's not going to, do it right it's probably trump or DeSantis. uh so you know it'll you know i think i think yeah, nikki I haley think nikki haley nikki haley doesn't have a nikki haley doesn't have a prayer i, I think it's hard to imagine it's not going to be trump or DeSantis. um and you know neither of them seems particularly upset you know DeSantis seems relatively un, uh, unobsessed with china trump sort of likes china i mean he sort of can't hide it you know, he also sort of like attacks them, but also. Well, also I think I think he actually he genuinely liked President G. I think he just no, likes she. I always say G likes, for some reason. He likes, dictators. but like there are tweets. There are tweets in the pre in pre COVID times where he's like effusive well, in his praise well, for she President will, well, she will still, well, she'll still be there, right? So yeah. So Trump, yeah, Trump can. <laughs> he loves Kim Jong Un. I mean, he loves these guys. He likes all Asian leaders. I think he, you know, he likes Abe. Is, is there ever an Asian leader he doesn't? I guess he didn't get along with whoever was president of South Korea. Right. And like whatever soft affinity he might have displayed at times for Putin, it's sort of like a similar tr dynamic. But with Putin, it got sort of mutated in the like popular media narrative into some sort of, you know, dark collusion conspiracy when, when it like the explanation was much more simple all the time. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. What were we talking, what were we <laughs> I don't saying? know what you we were talking about. Okay, so one one more thing that I wanted to uh, mention to you, and then we'll go to uh, questions. <clears throat> um, so I had an a, a odd exchange a few days ago with a person who has an interesting position. He runs the um, – he's a dean at the – something called the Marshall, hold on, the Marshall Center, which is this like quasi-academic security studies institute in Germany that's um, funded by the Department of Defense. It's like an adjunct of the Department of Defense and then also the German equivalent. Um, so it's where, you know, they have all these like security, sta security studies programs and um, – it's one of these sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, clearing houses for like policy recommendations in relation to like the Western Alliance and what have you. 
And his name is Andrew uh, Mikta. And I'm interested in this in part because I'm actually uh, going to the Munich Security Conference in a couple weeks in Germany, um, which is like the the big security, quote unquote, conference of Europe uh, annually. Um, I don't know if you recall this, but uh, just before the invasion happened last year, Zelensky actually uh, attended the Munich Security Conference and people were like, you know, uh, raising alarm or sounding the alarm because they thought that when he was out of the country at the um, Munich Security Conference that Putin was going to take advantage and invade and like overthrow the regime (laughs) Uh, while he was, uh, you know, absent. And that didn't end up happening that way. But anyway, one of the types of people who are going to be at this particular conference is this person, Andrew uh, Mikta. And um, so he's putting, he's putting out this whole theory of Russian culture, right? And it's interesting because um, although we tend to like kind of commonly now assume that the most hawkish people on Russia, right, especially in relation to the American political context, are, you know, uh, crusading moralistic liberals, right, um, liberal interventionists. Um, but this person, Andrew Mikta, is interesting because he's Polish-born, right? So he's Polish-American, has a prominent spot in the American sort of defense industrial complex in a sense, and um, is – before 2022 was identified like as a conservative hawk or as like more of a right-wing kind of hawk, but now it's like a little bit more ambiguous. So, but he put out this theory on like what the West really needs to come to terms with in terms of uh, having an accurate – understanding of Russia writ large, Russian society writ large. And he says that, quote, it's time to set aside our double standard whereby it comes to, when it comes to Russia, we don't enforce the rules, but instead hope for a good czar like Gorbachev or Yeltsin with whom we can do business to quote Lady Thatcher. We should also set aside the nonsense about Russian high culture. Russian culture must be seen in its totality. It's not just Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, or ballet. It's first and foremost the gulag, prisons, firing squads, rape, and torture. It's the culture of violence and theft as a mode of governance. It's an empire awash in blood. Watch how the Russians behave in Ukraine where premeditated destruction and murder is the rule. And ask yourself if that, if this is someone that you would like to invite to dinner or even live next door to. <laughs> Bottom line, Europe will know no peace until Russia is expelled from Europe. So, I mean, my thought <laughs> was that although that's kind of like liberal coded rhetoric of some kind now, um, despite this individual's uh, particular origins, uh, isn't that the kind of rhetoric that would be like in most contexts denounced as genocidal? I mean, he's saying that Russian culture is inherently to be defined by, first and foremost, it's you know disposition toward, quote, rape and torture. So they're saying that He's saying that Russian Russian culture yeah. forgets Dostoevsky yeah. and Tolstoy and Ballet. First and foremost, it has to be understood as like barbaric, sexually predatory, um, thieving, and just like uh, marked by unmitigated violence. I'm sure Russia has a lower murder rate than we do, actually. Well, it also has a lower uh, rate of people in pr- uh, percentage of people in prison. <laughs> yeah, but they have yeah they have a lower yeah they have a lower murder. Rate. <clears throat> I mean, when, when the U.S. prison rate peaked in 2008, so it peaked in 2008. Yeah. Um, there were lots of studies at the time showing 
And, you know, maybe this is not the most precise yeah, methodology, but that the U.S. had a higher rate of its popular, a higher percentage of its population under carceral control than so, the Soviet, than the Soviet Russia did during the gulags with Stalin in power. Yeah, I don't know. We don't have, uh, yeah, Soviet Union probably had zero crime. I mean, probably, you know, it's probably, you know, it's, it's possibly correct. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a it's a weird. I mean, first and foremost, I mean, like, how do you you know how do you prove that? And what do you? But it's interesting. It sounds like to me like he was saying that you need a. He said you need a good czar you can do business with. Is that what his argument was? So he's like, he's well, like, he said we have to get beyond just kind of hoping for a good czar that we can do business with, like waiting around like Lady Thatcher did for Gorbachev or Yeltsin, and just recognize that you, the culture you, itself is depraved, and so we can't do business with it anymore, and it has to be quote expelled. How do you yeah? How do you expel it from Europe? Well, that's the question. I mean, it sounds a bit genocidal, doesn't it? <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Yeah, I would have jumped to that conclusion. But well, no, I wouldn't either. End. But I'm saying that conclusion would be jumped to if that rhetoric were employed with like pretty much any other group at this point. Well, I mean, you can't. Yeah, I mean, they're uh, they're white people and they're a geopolitical enemy. So Russia is a unique position where you can criticize them and you can criticize their culture in a way that you can't for any other people. Uh, in the world. So, yeah, I think that's right. You got to exchange with him. What did he say? Well, he, he I, well, he said, um, uh, he, he made like a plea saying, <laughs> you know, I'm on Twitter for, um, reason debate. So please, everybody just make sure that we strive toward reason debate. Like no trolls. He didn't address me, me directly, but clearly he was like, re- uh, reacting to my trying to engage with him. And he said, um, you know, so but he's going to block everybody who's just a troll. So I, I said, okay, I welcome to have a reason debate about this issue. And I cited to him his own words about what he said about Russian culture, and then he just blocks me. So, but maybe I'll uh, maybe if I can run into him at this Munich Security Conference, we can resume the reason debate. Uh, good. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully he's going to be there. You say? Um, I would think so. I don't know for sure, but he would. He's definitely the type of person that you would expect to go. Uh, okay. Interesting. Well, maybe you guys can get dinner. Yeah. All right. Let's go to uh, callers then. Vincent. Hello. You're up, Vincent, if you're there. Yeah. Um, what do you – who do you guys think is going to win the Republican nomination between Trump or Biden? Well, I don't think Biden's going to win the Trump Republican nomination. nomination. Or uh, Trump and DeSantis. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you see? Did you see my deep fake of Biden talking about the trans issue? No. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. If you see that, maybe you'll think he has a chance in the Republican. Uh, he has a chance in the Republican primary. There's, there's like somebody who made a very good deep fake of like Trump, or Biden, like ranting, like in the most hateful terms possible about like tra- uh, trans, uh, trans women, <laughs> and it's sort of it's crazy. Um, so yeah. So that's why I was thinking maybe he saw that and thought Biden was going to run as a as a Republican. I think he, I assume he means Trump and DeSantis. Yeah, yeah, he just clarified. He said Trump and DeSantis. Uh, he's gone. Um, uh, yeah, I think I, I, I thought Trump forever, and then I thought DeSantis maybe, and now I'm going back to Trump. I, I sort of just think it's going to be Trump. Yeah, you know, I mean, my, I have like a just, I mean, I'm not going to make a firm prediction because I am sort of tired of that for reasons we've gone through. I know Richard is more inclined toward making actual predictions and then sort of like evaluating how accurate his predictions were. Um, I'm not inclined to really to do that. I'm just more inclined to give like certain heuristics as to how I'm thinking about it and like what factors I would take into account to sort of 
make assessments as to the likelihood of one or another candidate of winning, right? So first of all, we don't even know that DeSantis is necessarily going to run yet. I mean, he's doing everything that he that you would expect him to do if he were to run. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> other candidates have done that in the past <clears throat> where they do everything that you'd expect them to do if they were going to run and then decide not to run. Um, I don't know, Mitch Daniels, I don't know if people remember him, but that was, you know, a big uh, – Favorite of the conservative intelligentsia for a while. He was the governor of uh, Indiana who thought that he was uh, he was going to, you know, conservative, you know, pundits thought that he was going to be this reform-minded uh, Republican candidate. He didn't end up running in 2012. Um, uh, you know, Biden in 2016 even. He was setting into motion the uh, kind of machinery to potentially run um, and then decided not to. Uh, Mario Cuomo famously in 1988 went so far as being, uh, perched on the tarmac <clears throat> on, uh, on the, uh, in the airport in the Hudson Valley w waiting to take off to go campaign in New Hampshire and then decide at the last minute not to take off on his plane and then, you know, Dukakis wins the nomination. So, I mean, we don't know that DeSantis is even going to run. Maybe there are, you know, considerations he might take into account. I think it's probably likelier than not that he will run, but I don't know. So that's one thing. But on the uh, another thing is, I think there's a chronic tendency to underrate the historically unique advantages that Trump has in a Republican nomination contest. I mean, he's the former incumbent president, so he's running as a quasi incumbent president, which is like a massive advantage that you can't even really replicate. I mean, remember, it wasn't so long ago that the entire Republican National Committee, and I'm not saying it's the same exact situation now, but the entire Republican National Committee was basically Trump's own private political operation for four years, um, four plus years, really, um, to the point where they're still paying off his January 6th legal expenses. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's one thing that I think people are underrating the significance of, in part because there's a faction of, again, the conservative intelligentsia who, for whatever kind of philosophical uh, accommodations they might have believed they made to Trump's style of re Republican governance. Um, don't want Trump again. Don't want whatever baggage they associate with Trump to have to be something that they need to be, you know, accountable for, for the next four plus years. And so they're trying to kind of wish cast him away as a viable contender and uh, you saw this for a while, even when he made his announcement after the midterms that he was f formally running again, that they were saying, oh, it's like a weak speech. And, yeah. you know, this shows that Trump doesn't yeah, really have I, it. It's I, like, I, what, is, what difference does it make how exciting his speech yeah. in November of 2022 uh, 20, is? I mean, they're using like ridiculous metrics to like somehow discount the viability of Trump. I think they've. I think they've, uh, I think they've, I, I, I don't think they do that as much anymore. I mean, I think they're sort of, For a while there was this, like, there's this quote from Rob Portman and like, uh, some, I don't remember where, but Rob Portman was like, I think Trump is going to look at the data, realize he can't win and then do the best thing for the party. And I was like, <laughs> hey, what, what is this guy? What, what is this guy smoking? Right. It's like, uh, uh, you know, but I, I think, I, I don't think any, I think, I, you know, I think people have sort of. I think people have learned their lesson of all was like Trump is over, Trump is over, and the poll they see the polls, they see Trump is uh, winning. So I, I think almost I think almost people are like maybe a little bit too confident um, in Trump at this point. I don't think people are like wish wish casting him away anymore. I, I think people people know he's for real. People know his uh, staying power is lasting. Being incumbent president is big, but he's a, he's a he's a incumbent president who lost. Right? He's not a incumbent president running for a second term, which those people always get the nomination yeah uh, so that's why i, I think quasi-incumbent yeah so it's, yeah. Uh, so i think it's gonna probably be trump we don't have any 
you know, it's not to say, if DeSantis doesn't play well, it's like hard to see who rises up and takes it. It's just that you have to consolidate it around one person, right? And also, uh, right. And also, I mean, the the theory, the running theory was that you know, if the Republican Party really wants to make sure that Trump doesn't win, it has to avoid what it did in 2016, which is have a whole flurry of candidates who are siphoning off votes and allowing Trump to win by like you know a 33 percent plurality. Right. And we don't have any indication that they're doing that collection. That they're solving what they used to call a collective action problem. I mean, yeah. Nikki Haley is running. Uh, Pompeo is doing everything that you'd expect him to do if he were running. Pence potentially is running. And you have, you know, even just like, you know, small, uh, more minor candidates like an Asa Hutchinson, the governor, the former governor of Arkansas, um, Chris Christie. Um, and there are probably some others that are missing Tim Scott. Um, so, I mean, what what evidence well, the hope, is there the that hope is DeSantis? I mean, the hope for them, the anti-Trumps is DeSantis is so far ahead of the field. So, like, you look at the polls now. I looked at the recent, most recent ones, like forty-eight Trump, thirty-one DeSantis, like seven Pence. So the hope is like at some point people will realize, okay, hey, you know, Pence, Pompeo, none of these guys are going to win. Uh, they get out, um, and then it's it's Trump, right? I, I think that or it's Trump and DeSantis. So that's the if like if somebody catches up to DeSantis and DeSantis stumbles. And it's not clear that it doesn't happen, right? So, that that's that that's the question. And yeah, like what these people are doing, Pompeo. You know, somebody told me that these guys run for president because their view is like, you know, I'm like two heartbeats away. Like Trump drops dead from a heart attack, and like DeSantis drops dead from a heart attack. <laughs> like I've got, a, you know, I've got a chance. So, or you know, it's still it's it's it still works for their self interest to run because they raise their profile. Hugely. Yeah, well, they, well, they um, say Christy Nome is going to run, and all she's going to do is attack DeSantis because she wants to be Trump's vice president, right? So there's people there you go. for vice president too. Yeah, and this, I mean, there are a lot. I mean, that's why like a billion people ran in 2020 for the Democrats. Um, I mean, would be would any of us know who Andrew Yang is if he hadn't run for president? Um, you know, how about uh, Elizabeth Warren? I mean, she was a high-profile figure, but she entered like a new kind of echelon of notoriety. And so, you know, there's a, sort of like a perverse incentive thing. But they, where, they, 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 they did the collective uh, – they, they overcame the collective action problem. Klobuchar and Buttigieg right on the cusp of South Carolina. They really didn't want Sanders. So Republicans have never showed this kind of, uh, I guess, selflessness for the good of the party. Um, right. Now, you know, Buttigieg, the secretary of transportation, which I doubt he would be if he had just been the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Yeah. Right. So, so I guess that's the, the, po- the I point guess is, whatever right. the collective action is, uh, you know, strategy running for president. And this is also true for Republicans to some degree. It, it raises the profile of those who run, which is like a goal to be aspired toward, even if it's a secondary goal to actually winning. So you are things that you can achieve if you run without that are achievable even if you don't come close to winning the domination, which is why people might want to run. I mean, look at Christie. Um, you know, he for a while was going to be, you know, he was on course to, he was staffing the entire government for Trump at one point. Kushner fired him um, after the election in 2016. Yeah. But, but Christie you know, did the, Christie did the, uh, yeah, but Christie attacked Rubio. I mean, Christie, it makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. Why didn't anyone like, uh, and it was a very, it was a very, everyone hated Cruz in 2016. That was a problem. Cruz was the only real threat to Trump. Everyone hated Cruz, but Cruz is now like one of the most recognizable American political figures, right? Yeah. Nobody talks about Cruz running. Hey, yeah, I don't know why he wouldn't. He, um, he is, he, I mean, Cruz actually might run. I mean, I don't know for sure, but he, um, he's, uh, he's 
made argue. I mean, I, I saw a clip of him on the uh, some Daily Wire podcast thing. Like, I guess he co-hosted for a while, um, where he was saying, "Look, I was the runner-up in 2016, which is true in terms of delegates." And the Republican Party has a long history of the runner-up being the next in line. Look at uh, look at uh, McCain. Look at Romney, which is you know yeah. true enough. Bob Dole. Um, so he said, you know, look, I, I have a perfectly valid argument to run, and uh, but I don't have, I don't know of any reporting of him actually moving toward running. No, but, you know, that's not the question. I, John Bolton has even said that he's looking into running. Uh, John Bolton is the, I think, what the reporting says that's pretty much for sure. Oh, and then okay, the, there uh, you go. So and, and the Cruz, yeah, they they say Cruz is considering it. Uh, so uh, yeah, this I think all these guys will get it. Yeah, I mean, the question is, will. Any of them, will DeSantis just be able to go beyond the fact Trump is going to get 40? I mean, Trump is going to at least get 40. He's at least going to get 45. You know, I don't think anybody doesn't do that. So it, it's a narrow path for anyone. I mean, it really is a narrow path for DeSantis, right? Anyone else, it's like much narrower. So, yeah. A lot yeah, and the, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, Trump can make an argument legitimately that he is the only person on earth. Forget the only Republican, the only person on earth who has ever delivered to you know, conservative Christian voters the one thing that they've been desperately seeking through their activism and their political involvement yeah, in the overall for 40 years, which is the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Yeah, but I, 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 that yeah. just happened. So I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. you, can't, you can't dispute that. Well, I mean, he got. I mean, the guy. I mean, they, they all died at. The, I mean, the justice died at the right time. <laughs> well, when however it worked, however it turned out that it happened, it happened. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It did happen. That's true. Yep. So I don't know. Um, all right, let's go to uh, Sterling. Good evening, gentlemen. Hi. Okay, so I have a totally different take on this Russia thing, and I always have, and it's kind of just freaky because I'm like, why is am I crazy? Um, I don't think we give a damn about Ukraine at all. I think this is literally, truly about getting rid of Russia to get to Iran. And I'm looking at this article that Glenn Greenwald wrote in 2007. Um, if I could read it really quickly, it's really short. Um, it says, in October 2007, General Wesley Clark gave a speech to the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco in which he denounced what he called a policy coup engineered by neocons in the wake of 9-11. After recounting how a Pentagon source had told him weeks after 9-11 of the Pentagon's plan to attack Iraq, notwithstanding its non-involvement in 9-11. This is how Clark described the aspirations of the coup being plotted by Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, and what he called a half a dozen other collaborators from the Project for a New American Century. So then it goes on to describe the conversation. It says, six weeks later, I saw the same officer and asked, why hadn't we attacked Iraq? Are we still going to attack Iraq? He said, sir, it's worse than that. He said, Sterling, just to, he just to clarify, this paper. Wesley Clark speech was in 2002, if I'm not mistaken, not 2007. Right. The article this, that, right, that right, Remal right. wrote was no so. Right. That's exactly right. That's what I'm saying, that the article was written in 2007 because of what it goes on to say in, a, in, right. in, in, in the next paragraph. There's only one more paragraph. Um, he said, sir, it's worse than that. And this is for your callers. I don't know. I, I assume you definitely would know this. Um, I just got this memo. Um, it says we're going to attack and destroy the governments in seven countries in five years. We're going to start with Iraq, and then we're going to move on to Syria, Lebanon, Libya, so Somalia, Sudan, and Iran. 
Clark said that the aim of this plot was this. They wanted to wanted us to destabilize the Middle East, turn it upside down, make it under our control. He then recounted a conversation he had 10 years earlier with Paul Wolf- Wolfowitz back in 1991, in which the number three Pentagon official, after criticizing Bush 41 for not toppling Saddam, told Clark, but the one thing we did learn from the Persian Gulf War is that we can use our military in the region. In the Middle East, the Soviets, Soviets will not stop us. And we've got about five or ten years to clean up those old Soviet regimes, Syria, Iran, and Iraq, before the next superpower comes along to challenge us. Clark said he was shocked by his desires. As Clark put it, the purpose of the military is to start wars and change governments. It's not to deter conflicts. And I, I think when Russia really came into Syria and was a threat, um, I think that absolutely infuriated us. And I think that's why we're going after Russia now. I don't think this has a damn thing to do with, with Ukraine. And I think when you look at all the neocons that have gone over there, even while um, Trump was in office, and even Lindsey Graham, I mean, everybody that was going to Ukraine, it just never made sense to me before even before we even did this. I was like, what's the big deal in Ukraine? Why is everybody going to Ukraine? It's like the most corrupt country. And I guess this is why. So you know, nev- none of this surprised me. And when we, whatever, whatever went on there with Iran, I mean, obviously Israel doesn't like Iran. They don't like each other at all. And Israel, you know, obviously pro-Israel people are in our government and the highest levels of government. Um, I just don't, I think it sucks for Ukrainians. And I think that, you know, my ex-husband is Estonian. And like all of these people that really want this, these, to see Russia out of their lives um, actually are just going to be used as cannon fodder for what I think we just really want is to completely destabilize and own the Middle East because there is a lot of oil there. And I just think that's the, the point of it all is to get rid of Russia to get to the Middle East again, because that is what we were not happy at all with what happened in Syria. And we're still not. And we're still lying about it. So, yeah, I just wanted to add that and read that again. I was sure you knew about it. Everybody knows that comment because it's so mm. horrifying. And then when you have Hillary Clinton, like, we came, we saw, we killed them all. You know, And, no, and the 500,000 people with, um, you know, what's your name, Madeleine Albright, like, nobody cares about just, like, hundreds of thousands of people dying. And it's just sick. And I think we are that evil. I think we would so easily just use the Ukraine as cannon fodder they, to get they, what we want. But the complicating factor there is that, you know, there was a time, like when that, those ideas were most in vogue, right, where the U.S. was going to basically overthrow every enemy government in the Middle East on this, like, mass liberation crusade. Um, that coincided with a period where Russia was seen as something of an ally. Um, you know, if you go back and look at coverage of Putin from like oh one to oh seven ish, it's it, there. The, he there's Russia is seen as like within the American almost sphere of influence. So clearly, the Russian government as it existed then was not seen as an impediment to carrying out this Middle East crusade, right? So I don't know if it's accurate accurate to say that nobody cares about Ukraine as such. I think mm-hmm. there are actually there is some care about Ukraine insofar as it serves a certain ideological purpose, um, you know, as a proxy uh, to, to combat Russia. And for a number of years now, Russia is seen as this progenitor of like global um, menace and the exportation of authoritarianism and fascism. And I also think like once the war starts and we're all told about how we have to stand with Ukraine and how Ukraine is this bastion of democracy and liberal values, there probably does develop like also a particular attachment to Ukraine itself that might not have existed before the war, but now like does actually play into why people are so um, 
adamant about supporting Ukraine until, you know, victory is achieved. So I think, I don't know if that theory necessarily sort of explains the, the intensity of the, of the feeling now in terms of why this particular war effort has to keep going. Well, I think as far as like um, playing on Americans' emotions, we always love the idea of we're going to bring, you know, democracy and freedom to people. We love to hear that kind of stuff. I mean, it's like, you know, since World War II, they've thrown that stuff at us. And um, I just, I don't, I don't trust it anymore at all. And I definitely, um, I, I totally, I, I get what you're saying, but I think just following this this long, and, and you have too, I get that, but um, I don't trust any of this at all. I don't trust, and I don't like who's running the show. I don't like that Biden's the president while all this is happening. I don't have faith in Biden. I don't actually, I think he's just the face of something um, really probably pretty sinister. And um, I mean, it, it's just, and, and, you know, but, uh, we, we can say all these horrible things about Russia because we've been raised to be, been, sure they've done horrible things we're not exactly saints i mean we have the biggest prison complex in the on the on the planet um and treating people terribly more and more all the time so we're really losing that higher moral ground with anybody anymore i don't think russia wanted this war i really don't and um it's not like i'm some big russia fan i'm just trying to look at this objectively and um, I'm not seeing where we're the heroes in any of this. I think we are completely greedy. I think we really want control of everything. And in order to have control of everything, you're going to have to get rid of Russia and you're going to have to get rid of China. And good luck. I mean, it's like, yeah. are you kidding? So, well, yeah, I mean, I think scary. with Biden in particular, there is a very good argument to be made that there is that there happens to be this longstanding sort of investment in Ukraine in particular. Yeah. I mean, I've uh, I've yeah, I've uh unearthed quotes going back decades from Biden, mm -hmm. where Biden himself was one of the first advocates of Ukraine entering NATO before it was ever really even being entertained as, the, as a viable option. Um, so Biden does actually have just this entrenched sort of liberal interventionist sort of uh, uh, mentality that goes back very uh, you know, now multiple decades in his career where he was like the point person for the Bush administration in the in the uh, early 2000s in the Senate for ushering through the um, ushering through the resolution to authorize the accession of the uh, Baltic states and uh, Bulgaria and Romania into NATO um, in the in the 90s he was also one of the like he was you, you could watch him on the Senate floor and I talked about this before I did a, also did a substack on it over the summer you can watch him on the Senate floor parrying with uh, other senators like Daniel Patrick Moynihan um, supporting the uh, Biden being the one who was in support of that first round of NATO expansion in 99 with Poland Hungary and the Czech Republic so this is actually a long-standing sort of ideological goal of Biden's Hence why Obama, when Biden was vice president, gave him the portfolio for Ukraine. I think people tend to misconstrue that as necessarily showing that there's like this um, corrupt, corrupt motive or there's this well, uh, then why aren't they corruption being covered up that explains why Biden's so interested in Ukraine. I mean, I think that's a secondary issue. The, 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 the primary issue seems to be it's an actual sort of longstanding um, ideological investment that Biden has made given his whole paradigm of liberal interventionism that has been the defining characteristic of like the latter half of his, you know, 50 uh, year political career. But you and I talked about Peter Hitchens, didn't we? Wasn't that you and I? 
Yeah, you did. Okay. So, and he had recommended the book, The Deluge, because it just talked about how... Yeah, I read that too. Right, and how important Ukraine is to Germany, especially since World War I. So Ukraine has been the goal for a really, really long time. I mean, it, but we could never give them NATO. It's like this carrot we had, we just dangle in front of them. Um, and I don't, I don't, and we keep telling them even now, you know, you're not going to get a NATO. It's like, it seems so evil what we do. And so, yeah, that, that, I just don't trust what we're doing there at all. And there's still people, I mean, I don't, um, that they're just still people. And I think it's really crazy for us to basically, this is our war. And we're, as far as I'm concerned, and we want Russia and we want them weakened because he said in, in April, what was it? April something. Um, we need to remove this man. I can't see, I just gave the quote to Aaron Mate. Yeah. March of um, 2020. Yeah. yeah. So the whole goal has always been, we've got to get rid of Russia. We don't care about these Ukrainians. It's horrible. I don't, and, but we just plan people's emotions. Everybody's got flags out. It's like, Oh my God. It's, it's just, it's like gut wrenching to me. Every time I see a flag, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is just awful. And I think we're out of control and completely arrogant. I mean, we're going to start wars with everybody. It's just completely insane. And, um, anyway, so I just wanted to just, you know, remind everybody about, you know, how long this has been going on and how important Iran, that was like the, that was like the main thing we really wanted to get was Iran in this whole deal. Um, and here we are, you know, we're, but we're, we're, we're doing this to Russia and we're going to play games with Iran. And I think is so interesting about we've, maybe we've learned not to, this is something totally different. Um, but there's something interesting with how Israel plays Palestine. In that, you know, we're going to kill a few people here, we're going to take a little land, and then we're going to wait for things to die down for a little bit. And we're going to, um, I, I mean, this has been going on for so long, and it just seems really incremental. So I hate when I hear, like, long-haul wars and stuff like that, where we just incrementally just keep messing with people. Because that just, the, it just makes the morale of the whole country and the world just, you're just playing with us. And I'm just completely done with it. It's like you people aren't even that smart. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. um, you're just clever, you know, and there's a big difference. But um, All right. Anyway. Well, uh, thanks for your thoughts, Sterling. As, yeah. uh, again, appreciate it. No problem. Something right, to think let's about. Go to, uh, yep. Let's go to Phil. Hey, Phil. Phil, are you there? Uh, yep. Uh, hold on. Hey. Coming, coming. <laughs> uh. Get yourself situated. Gotcha. Buckle up. Have you got me yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got you. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I had a question for you guys. I'm glad to have Richard. Uh, usually when I'm talking, Richard's long gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm here for you, Phil. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Waited just uh, for you. Thank you. Uh, what I'm interested in, I'd like to get your guys' take today on what you think the status of this conflict is. Just in, as though you were handicapping a sports enterprise or something like that. Because I think that's what's lacking in the broader conversation about this. I mean, people have no idea, I think, what's going on. Uh, but I'd be interested in in your assessment. I mean, I know when I hear Richard, I think it's it's different to yours, Michael. You know, uh, but that that that's kind of what I'm interested in your take on. All right, Richard, how do you handicap the war as of today, February second, two thousand? 
you, uh, Ukraine keeps getting um, better technology. Uh, they, they keep they got these uh, longer range missiles. So from what I hear now, basically they can reach anything in Ukrainian territory, right? So anything that Russia occupies within Ukraine, they can reach. And this is you know this could potentially hurt the Russian. Once this new line, missile technology they, arrives, with the which the U.S. is announcing this week, right? Yeah, yeah, and they have you know they have superior satellite technology. They rely on the U.S. They have superior accuracy with the high Mars and the missile system. So they have real, you know, advantages in the hitting uh, different things. Now, I mean, Russia has manpower. It can always mobilize. We don't know the Ukrainian manpower situation. We don't know how bad they are at this point. But Russia, you know, apparently has a lot. They've been, they did mobilization and they're holding off some people they haven't even put in there yet. I've read the you know the the Bakhmut thing. They're they're sort of draining Ukrainian resources. Ukraine has bad shortages with uh, uh, artillery, and Russia does too. But you know, I don't know who I don't know who's 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 is worse. Um, and uh, you know, I don't know. Like Russia making large gains is sort of hard to imagine. Uh, Ukraine making some gains, um, you know, is potentially easier to imagine because it's. They've got the technological superiority, and they're going to have that. That's going to grow. Why? So hold, let me just um, ask but, quickly though: Why is Russia making hard games difficult to imagine? Because we do see right now, apparently, them making incremental gains around uh, Bakhmut, um, taking you know, a couple of villages a day. I'm not saying that alone is significant, but you know, if there's a decent chance that they do take Bakhmut within the next week or two, um, as some people seem to think is likely. Then you know that's a somewhat significant gain, uh, isn't it? Because like it cuts off certain supply lines and what have you. So like, why, why are we to just assume that further gains are out of the question? I mean, because it was a very costly thing. There was a report in the New York Times that the, basically that the U.S. thinks that this has been like a meat grinder. Basically, they've been just throwing everything into Bakhmut, and it's not a big victory. It's not like a major city, right? So like, there's you know they're, they're going to have to. It's not very well fortified, so they're going to have to like take more take more land that's more fortified and it's like bigger population centers. It's hard to imagine. I mean, they're not there's nothing that Russia has that is getting better, right? Their technology is sort of is what it is. Their stuff is depleting. They can re- they can replace it, but they're not getting any kind of superior technological edge compared to what they've had before. Um, and so this is what yeah, the Bakhmut, yeah, they can they can you know they can. Uh, you know, they can sort of uh, uh, force this victory out. Like with the Wagner conscripts, they're just sending sort of to their to their deaths. Um, but, you know, the question is, you know, how repeatable is that? How much can you do, how much can you do with that? Um, and so, but like a stalemate, I mean, it doesn't mean that Ukraine is sure to make gains. I mean, I think a stalemate, an indefinite stalemate could be sort of in the cards. And if I was going to guess... Uh, it would probably be that um, with second most likely scenario, Ukraine gains, and then least likely scenarios, uh, serious Russian gains in the near future. Well, I mean, and in terms of my handicap, um, you know, what I tend to be focused on is the U.S. policy role in this. I mean, as people probably can figure out at this point. And I did notice something very interesting a couple of days ago which is that if you look at this Institute for the Study of War, which is constantly quoted everywhere in the media for like tactical updates on the kind of status of the battlefield um, in, in Ukraine, and it's, you know, it just happens to be run by the, uh, 
the uh, wife of uh, one of the Kagans is the neocon clique that don't seem to ever go away. But that notwithstanding, I mean, there's probably some useful information in there. And they had this whole sort of um, lament that they published on um, Tuesday or Monday where they're complaining that Ukraine, because Ukraine has no meaningful defense industry of its own, um, it is there almost entirely reliant, therefore almost, quote, entirely reliant on its Western backers to provide the material it needs to stop Russian offensives and then to initiate and sustain counteroffensives, right? So the, um, the point of this report is that because U.S. slash NATO as quote-unquote assistance is like far and away the most decisive variable in the war, at least as far as Ukraine's um, readiness and um, uh, capability goes, that the, U- the U.S. has actually been derelict in not being um, far-sighted enough in like sending, for example, um, tanks months ago uh, or in um, sending these uh, long-range missiles months ago when it could have made more of a difference. And because of the delay, it ended up sort of hobbling Ukraine's ability to carry on with the counteroffenses that it had launched starting in September last year. And then um, since November, hasn't made any more gains, really. Um, so it, the, it really comes down to like to what extent the U.S. in particular was willing to double down on the war effort. And so I almost think that trying to like evaluate it from the standpoint of like some kind of like whatever tactical prowess Ukraine itself possesses is almost beside the point. Hence why you have this mad rush in the past few weeks to prepare for, you know, these uh, dueling offensives that Ukraine and Russia are going to be uh, launching in the spring and summer. And that's like supposed to be the decisive period of the war, although that's been said before. So, I mean, it, it really comes down to like how committed is the U.S. in particular to this war effort Um and like that's what you actually, I think, have to take into most account as like the determining determinative factor. So, in terms of handicapping, I mean, I don't know. All I can do is like sort of read the tea leaves or read what's you know, even just the uh, yeah. overt statements in terms of like how that willingness is ebbing and flowing. Because um, like on well, the one hand, we have we had like two weeks ago the Biden administration would leak to the New York Times that it was warming on the prospect of an offensive in Crimea, even though they didn't think it could be militarily successful. So that's sort of odd. And then apparently there was a briefing today by the um, Pentagon and some intelligence agencies to the House Armed Services Committee where they're saying they don't think it's likely that the that Ukraine could take Crimea, and yet like some sort of offensive in Crimea is going to happen. Anyway, I mean, it's really difficult to say. It's sort of muddled, and I think, um, I don't know, it comes, again, it comes down to how much investment the U.S. maintains in achieving whatever it sees to be, like, satisfactory victory. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the only thing that you can uh, use, I mean, I'd, I'd like to send Richard some stuff because I think there's some interesting comments there, but rather than get into that, I, I think what I've seen over the last uh, couple of weeks, three, four weeks, is you're seeing more and more significant players and that means uh, you know senior people in a variety of uh, nato countries uh you know military people and uh, you know you've got the rand thing that you guys have talked about earlier i think all of all of them seem to be moving in a direction that says this is not going to quite work out <laughs> we're not going to kick russia out is the point <laughs> that's that's unlikely without 
some kind of massive escalation. You know, and uh, I mean, you know, you can have long range weapons, but all that is, is, uh, you know, that's, you can do nine elevens, but you can blow up a bridge, you know, but you, you don't have enough to sustain it. But anyway, what, what I'm reading is I hear people, I hear a, a variety of uh, military people from NATO countries, you know, that are, that are talking about uh, uh, how this is not, they don't see a line to the kind of victory that uh, uh, certainly uh, Ukraine is talking about. But, uh, but let, let, let me, let, let, I just want to ask one more thing. <laughs> That's an interesting conversation you guys had about Trump. I think it was two sessions ago. And, uh, it, you know, it was uh, this kind of counterfactual thing. I mean, what would we be in Ukraine if Trump was president? <laughs> would that have happened? Right. And I think there's a much longer term interesting conversation or analysis that we had on the internal dynamics within you know the administration the republicans etc on uh, uh you know whether or not uh, we would have gone that route uh uh so you know I guess, I guess you could kind of play with that i, I mean i think people were, were undermining his instincts to a certain extent this is not a trump praise it's just the reality of the situation. Uh, but it, it, what jumped at me when I thought about it, when you guys were talking about it, was that uh, if, you, if you think about Trump's personality, it is hard for, you, for me to imagine that he would pass on the opportunity to be central stage and be the peace negotiator. <laughs> I mean, that's just too tempting for him if that makes if that makes sense to you i mean I yeah could see him jumping on that opportunity i could see him jumping on that opportunity but yeah sorry but that would be his instinct i think yeah i mean that's the interesting i don't know i i'm a bit weary of these sort of speculative discussions of trump's purported instincts when we do have like a whole body of evidence that actually from his actual four years of governance that we can use to make these evaluations. Like I know um, Trump was like, you know, undermined from within to a certain degree. But at the same time, if you're the commander in chief, if you're the president, which is the most powerful position in the world, if he actually did have a particular interest in changing course on Ukraine policy, like, there's every reason to believe that he actually could have effectuated that if he so chose, but he didn't. Again, one example of, of this that people aren't aware of by and large, but is actually sure. somewhat telling. In 2018, okay, so October 2018, the um, U.S. and Ukraine launched a bilateral drill in Ukraine. Uh, it was an Air Force drill to uh, facilitate the interoperability of U.S. Air Force, the U.S. US Air Force and the Ukrainian Air Force. It was the first ever joint multinational exercise hosted by Ukraine and sponsored by the U.S. forces in Europe. Um, and it was all in, uh, intended to eventually bring Ukraine in line with NATO standards of interoperability. So this is, uh, in 2018, you can find the press release on the uh, Air Force website. I doubt anybody has really ever heard of this, unless you're like an insane sort of obsessive who uh, 
meticulously tracks this sort of thing. So, I mean, look at what the ultimate aim of that drill was. It was to do exactly what Putin says is his chief grievance, which is to bring Ukraine into interoperability with NATO as a forerunner of actual full-fledged NATO membership. So it was de facto NATO membership, and at the very least, like a intensification of military sort of ties that Ukraine has with uh, the U.S. in particular, but also NATO overall, and turning Ukraine into this sort of, you know, uh, uh, outpost of U.S. military power and projections of hegemony. So that was under Trump, right? So maybe that was done without his knowledge. I don't know. Uh, Maybe he had, like, only peripheral awareness of it. But if he actually had a bona fide, thoroughgoing interest in, uh, you know, bucking whatever sort of um, bureaucratic trends were underway within the apparatus of the Pentagon and the, the security state and, and to, uh, to, to, to make, set a different course on Ukraine, then, you know, that drill presumably wouldn't have happened, and it, and it happened. So, again, even if it's just like a, a sin by omission on his part or just given his aloofness or obliviousness, um, I do think it's, it says that um, he, had, he at, least, very, at the very least didn't have enough interest to actually do what was required to um, alter the trajectory on this stuff. And so, yeah, he might have an instinct today where he wants to be a peacemaker on the world stage, and that's you know feasible. But in terms of like the counterfactual of what would have happened if not for uh, – with Trump was in power, well, I, th- I think a lot of people don't understand that a lot of the st- – like a lot of the grievances that Putin mentioned in his speech on the night of the invasion um, – actually had to do with U.S. policy under Trump. I mean, he didn't yes. specify yeah, Trump. No, that, that, but, um, I mean, it was, it was more to do with Trump than Obama, really, if you t- tally all of them up. Uh, no, I, th- I think you're right. No. Uh, because he, uh, you know, I mean, he went after the pipeline. I mean, he, uh, uh, I mean, the whole argument of the Republicans that he was tougher on Russia than any of the president was true. Yeah, I was just on a Twitter Spaces session with uh, Seb Gorka, this, you know, psychotic um, Hungarian-British guy who's now a radio show host, but for like a while was in the Trump administration before he was forced out, who was like bragging. I mean, he he was like salivating about the time that Trump unleashed uh, a bombing attack on, you know, um, Wagner-affiliated personnel in uh, in Africa, like killed like a hundred Russians apparently. That was like, Seb Gorko was effusively praising that as like one of the most glorious things Trump ever did. Right, right. Uh, and, and of course, you know, Russiagate and, uh, and the Vindman factor. Yeah, and then that was they, another, that was they, another they, incentive like pushing him in that direction. Variable. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I'm, I'm still going to say at one point, peace and the ego would have won out. Then, not now. I'm not talking about now. That's a, we're in a different world now. Uh, but uh, anyway, thanks. So yeah, yeah. I'll let you guys go. Uh, go. Thanks, Thank Phil. You. Yeah, and I do think it is like it's sort. It is sort of weird um, that you know Biden is praised for having done such a spectacular job with regard to Ukraine and Russia. Where when if you go and review like the diplomatic. Um, back and forth from like December of 2021 to February 2022, where there's a standoff and, you know, where Biden is like, you know, setting his red lines and Putin's setting his red lines. I mean, it's actually one of the b- b- biggest diplomatic failures probably of all time in that, you know, it, it led, it, the impasse was never resolved and it led to an invasion. And yet, like, somehow that's like one of Biden's biggest credits. I don't understand that. But anyway, hey, hello, IDK, which I guess means I don't know. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe uh, <laughs> that's the name I got. So, um, hi, Michael. Uh, good to talk to you. Hey. Uh, it, and as far as I can tell, uh, U.S. had no intention of ever being diplomatic about this. We were uh, pushing for this at least since 2014, if not since 2004. Uh, we've been wanting a, a conflict with Russia and Ukraine. So, I, I mean, it seems obvious to me it was anything that was um, in any way uh, showing a, a, a different agenda was was basically political theater, but um, anyway, my my question is: I just I did an interview with a a friend of mine that's in Russia, and you know, just for like he's a small um, what do you call it uh, on social media kind of thing, just for like his circle of friends. Uh, they were interested in knowing, you know, what like regular American people think about what's going on in Ukraine. And uh, he was trying to pin me down on a percentage of, you know, say like the population, like how many are in favor of uh, what NATO and Ukraine, you know, and the whole thing, um, what they're up to. And I could not for the life of me um, give an accurate number because everyone I talk to, like even in, in regular life at the grocery store, at the gas station, um, at the school where my kids go, uh, everybody is either totally neutral on the subject or they uh, see what the U.S. is doing as completely wrong, you know, uh, meddling in affairs we shouldn't be. Um, so what I told him, you know, because obviously, you know, the, the, um, the establishment is completely in the corner for Ukraine. You know, like with this thing with uh Sean Penn giving the Oscar and Ben Stiller and all this nonsense that they have going on with the Hollywood characters. Um, they're making a big show of it, of how much support you have, uh, the U S has for, for Ukraine. And every time I see it, it makes me cringe. It's so gross. And everyone I ever talk to basically says the same thing. Like um, how, how pathetic does it, it does it seem uh, the way that, you know, our establishment and the UK, Boris Johnson, uh, and a anyone else, the same thing with uh, what Angela Merkel said about uh, the Minsk Accord, like, <clears throat> everybody licking Ukraine's asshole makes us sick. So um, when I tried to uh, give him a percentage, I said, mm, you know, because there are a lot of people in America who are very stupid, you know, uh, not to put too fine a point on it. They're very, um, what's the word for it? They have no critical thinking skills. They, they get led around by the nose. They get told what to think and how to feel uh, by the Hollywood celebrities or whoever else they're following on Instagram. So um, the best I could come up with is maybe a little more than half and his response was, would it be fair to say 45%? And, you know, I was thinking, yeah, that's fair. You know, it's less than half. I think it's more. I think it is about half. Um, but if you guys had to guess, what would you say? Well, I mean, it depends how you phrase the question, because there is polling on this. But the polling will often be something to the effect of, do you think that the U.S. is giving too much aid to Ukraine, too little, or just the right amount. And then if, if you tally up um, too little and just the right amount, it tends to come to around 
you know, a small majority in favor of some sort of aid to Ukraine, right? But then what is aid, right? I mean, without much specificity as to what they're actually querying people on their support of or lack thereof, I don't think that polling is all the all that illuminating. Um, so I would more like to see polls that maybe could ask something like, are you in favor of the current policy of the United States almost single-handedly subsidizing the entire Ukraine war effort, not just through weapons, but with operational coordination and, oh, oh by the way, also uh, funding the basic operations of the Ukraine state through um, direct provision of funds, which includes stuff like funding the um, basic uh, basic state operations in Ukraine, such as, you know, medical services, the educational system, uh, state salaries and pensions, um, and what have you. I mean, I, that's probably a little bit too much of a mouthful for a crisp, concise question, but something that actually captures the full breadth of what the actual policy is, and like to get a yes or no answer on that, uh, because I don't think um, I think the ways that the questions tend to be phrased are a bit vague and a bit sort of obscurantist as to like what that actual scope is. So um, you got to take the the polling with a grain of salt. As little of it does exist, at least in terms of what's helpful. Um, so I don't know. I think um, if uh, like. I could have the entire American public listen to me give a five-minute explanation of what the U.S. is doing in Ukraine, and then they could say whether they support it or oppose it. You know, it would probably be like, I don't know, 30% might say they support it. Uh, but then if you sort of uh, fiddle with the terminology and fiddle with the kind of uh, wordage of these questions, you can get different results. So it's, it's hard to say. Um, now, I also think, you know, emphasizing that the policy of the U.S., you know, is kind of almost necessarily intertwined with the intensification of the nuclear risk that is faced by both the U.S. and the world. Um, I think if that were that connection were made more clear, then you'd have a different, probably, reaction. Um, but, you know, it's, it's easy to be kind of... Uh, you know, very deliberate in sort of shrouding the true implications of the policy. So I think um, that's sort of co a uh, complicating factor in terms of how we can really best uh, understand the sort of nature of public opinion on this. Yeah, that's actually what I was going to say when you mentioned that. I think the vagueness is absolutely deliberate and it is kind of used as like, uh, I don't know, like a soft power kind of psyop. You know, it, just to, um, again, lead us around by the nose and tell us what we're supposed to be thinking. But um, so you say 30 percent, you, you would say 30 percent of the population would oppose uh, NATO operations. Uh, in, no, I think 30 percent would support it if I were given five minutes to explain, like, the full contours of the policy. I think it would be 70 percent opposed, probably. Oh, oh, okay. That, I like that. Thanks. That that gives me yeah. hope. I mean, an, an interesting example of this from history is, and I delved into this quite a bit a few months ago when I was on sort of a more of a World War II kick, um, 
is that a lot of people claim in hindsight that the U.S. public was just fully on board with entering World War II, right? So then they'll point to polling pre-Pearl Harbor, which shows that, you know, sizable majorities of the public would be in favor of, say, arming um, Britain through Lend-Lease or something, right? Because um, that was the, you know, the stated policy prior to Pearl Harbor of, in terms of what the U.S. was doing on the support the war effort. And um, so that will be extrapolated into like the U.S. having been in favor of like interventionism, essentially pre, pre, pre Pearl Harbor. And here's a complicating factor, which doesn't get talked about. I mean, the whole rationale for why that Lend-Lease program was being promoted as something that the U.S. had to do, again, in the pre Pearl Harbor phase of the conflict was because it would actually be the means by which the U.S. could stay out of direct involvement in the war. Like, that was how Roosevelt promoted it. That was how it was sold in much of the popular media. Like, it was, like, this was a necessary uh, policy undertaking because it would make it so that war would actually not come to the U.S. And, of course, it was the opposite, ultimately, in that it actually further integrated the U.S. into the war and ended up precipitating the full, full-blown involvement. Um, so, I mean, what, what does it really tell us that, you know, majorities of the public said that they supported Lend-Lease, um, if they were supporting the false pretenses, right? I mean, uh, that's why, you know, some of these public opinion questions are, uh, very, uh, layered and need, uh, a bit more of a, uh, you know, a multi-dimensional analysis than just yay or nay on this particular question that's posed given like the limited information that people tend to have, at least the, or even sometimes the outright false information that people have that's informing their views. Yeah, completely agreed. Would you want to see the interview that I did? I can send it to you. Yeah, you can send it to me, send it to me on email or Twitter DM if you have it or whatever, or uh, on here too. Yeah, it would have to be on here. I don't have Twitter unless I guess email would work. Um, yeah, or you can uh, just post it in the uh, post it in the comments on the call. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Yeah, thanks. it's less than a half an hour. Thanks. All Bye. right. All right, hey, Andrew. Training Andrew Trampian on the Michael Tracy show. <laughs> right, you're um, number one, Andrew. My heart. That's good to know. Um, I think. Uh, <laughs> I do have a cousin named Andrew, but he goes by a different name, so forget him. Okay. Well, hopefully he doesn't hear this and get mad about a technicality or something. But, yeah, there are three key things about Ukraine that I think you can read the kind of bloodstained tea leaves at this point. And the first one is the Rand Report, Avoiding a Long War. Have I talked to you about this one before? Or was that Richard like, and I, I spent the first uh, you know 20 minutes talking about okay. it in this I missed yeah, yeah, we talked. Okay, so summarizing that, just you, you've already done that. Then there's the other thing about the, what I heard you bring up, the Pentagon assessment that they can't retake Crimea, even with what's apparently coming, right? I mean, this is an assessment of they can't do it now, and I don't think that this – if this is what this uh, – all this aid is going to amount to is trying to – create an assault into Crimea, that assumes that they're not going to use any of it for defense, right? I mean, so hopefully a Russian offensive doesn't come along, because that would ruin the plans of that completely. And it looks like it's coming. Like you said, there's a fallback move that's likely, and Richard kind of downplayed it, because it wasn't a big city, and I was like, are you kidding? 
because it's part of a defensive line, which is kind of more important in a city. It doesn't matter the size of the city. Yeah, it's a transportation nexus, right? I mean, it's a supply chain. It's a node of the supply lines. Yeah, without getting tactically super nerdy, there's defensive lines in a war, and that's part of a defensive line, which is, this, I believe, the second defensive line, and then there's a third and a fourth behind it. But it's part of that second defensive line. If it were to fall, it would not be good for Ukraine. It's not strategically insignificant. And yes, there's a lot of death going on there for both sides, but we're not getting a clear picture of who's really losing more because that's not information anybody has available to them except for spooks who don't just go around saying the number, you know what I mean? So between that and then the third thing, which is, uh, I don't think, I'm not sure if you've seen this because uh, it's in the German press. It's the, I'm going to link, uh, drop the link in the chat right now. The Berliner Zeitung has a report that uh, Biden offered Russia, or I guess Putin, 20% of Ukraine's territory for peace. And I heard this is uh, unrelated to this. Well, it might be related, but I don't know for sure. I heard that uh, Bill Burns, I can't remember the source of this one, but Bill Burns apparently was meeting behind the scenes in January. And this was the thing that they couldn't get. Ukraine to agree to the deal because they weren't going to give up 20% of their territory and Russia wasn't going to go agree to the deal because they felt that they didn't need to because their military initiative when was, was this offer made greater results well I think that it was in this January according to the thing I read about Bill Burns going and secretly meeting yeah uh, I think it was in Ukraine I don't know where it was but apparently the was rejected by both sides in, in this January, and this Berliner Zeitung article I just linked, it kind of backs that report up in that they're reporting that Biden offered 20% of Ukrainian territory. So does this sound like a winning army right now? Like, why are they offering 20% if what this is for, what this, this arming of them with, you know, 31 Abrams in a year is for an offensive to retake Crimea, but they're willing to offer 20% now? Is that coherent to anyone? There's lying going on here. It's a public misdirection of we're going to have strength on a public front, wherein behind the scenes we're offering 20% apparently of, of the territory, which is not acceptable to Ukraine, and Ukraine won't even agree to it, which it's, it's never been part of their uh, position to agree to territorial losses. Yeah, I I just saw that there was a um, Biden official. Biden officials today denied this report called the completely false. Oh, um, interesting. Which who knows? I mean, that was that denial <laughs> sourced to a the CIA spokesperson, which that's their whole job to deny stuff falsely. Um, yeah, I mean, if this, let's say this is true and it's not implausible. Um, what does that say about this whole mantra where, you know, Ukraine is the one that has to decide its fate, right? Or that the U.S. is not going to dictate to Ukraine what is acceptable or, you know, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. That whole sort of faint that we hear nonstop about how only Ukraine is the decision maker here in terms of the overall strategic kind of outcome of the war. Well, <laughs> clearly that's 
nonsensical regardless, but especially if it's the case that the U.S. is making these entreaties where it's deciding how much territory could be ceded to um, to bring about like a ceasefire or, or what have you. I mean, that's almost like the most interesting part of it to me. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, so... I mean, I, I think you're right, though, because even in that initial New York Times report a few weeks ago where it was saying that the Biden administration was warming to the idea of launching an offensive in Crimea, there was, it was sort of weird and paradoxical because a couple paragraphs into it, it said that the military didn't think that it was actually viable that Crimea could be retaken by Ukraine. But what the U.S. was warming on doing was like just having Ukraine, Crimea become this, like, I guess, I don't know, um, theater of war where it would be subject to like repeated missile strikes and whatever just to send a message so i don't know it's it's really hard to to figure out what actually they're foreseeing is going to be the like eventual outcome here well Um, it's not in their hands necessarily if if the conditions in this report are true and they're offering 20 percent, i'm assuming that is true maybe it's not but from the way I'm seeing the way the war is going, and if Bakhmut falls and things continue to degrade for Ukraine, there's not going to be a lot of aid coming in the short term. They're giving, they're pledging the tanks, they're pledging the jets, they're pledging the IFVs. What's coming now is going to be a drip in. It's not 300 at once. They're not. So if if they're if they're losing the advantage and Russia is going to push and make an offensive, if this happens, I think that. My prediction is that the U.S. is going to come to a kind of fork in the road because it's going to force their hand politically and they're going to have to say, look, what we're doing isn't working and it's publicly failing. You can't hide when that kind of stuff's going on. And then the question's going to be, will, will NATO intervene directly? I, I think that's going to be the path. And I don't think Europe will do it unless America goes in first, and I don't think America is willing to do that. And I think it's very important to note that no one's having that conversation right now. It's almost like verboten to even talk about NATO entering. You, no one talks about that seriously, except for in very cheap political points on you know, Fox News or something. It's not discussed seriously. But I think if Ukraine really starts losing, and we realize we've already given them the aid... Well then, what what else are we supposed to do? Just say, well, have you know, we can't help you anymore. Sorry, we, here's another pledge. Yeah, sorry. Like our whole sort of um, logic as to why this was so existentially and civilizationally uh, necessary. Right. We're just gonna, you know, toss that by the wayside. Like we weren't really serious about it. I mean, that doesn't make sense. I mean, they they have had. They've invested such a huge amount ideologically, politically, you know, financially, militarily, and this, that they want to return on the investment. And I, I don't know, it's um, – especially if they're so concerned about like American credibility and prestige. Right, this is going to be – Which I think is kind of a fake concept to begin with. But like let's say that that's what they're interested in. Then what could be a bigger yeah, blow be than to just say that like America just has to forfeit this war effort that it had claimed was – you know the uh, the last bulwark against the triumph of global authoritarianism. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't like make sense yeah. according to the internal logic that's already been set out for why this right. conflict was so necessary for the U.S. to be like the ch- chief sponsor of in the first place. So how did they, I don't see how you flip the script on that because that is their logic and. 
though, just to sum up my prediction, if Russia makes offensive gains in the next month or two or three, in that they're serious, it will be recognized that what we're doing isn't enough and that we'll come to that fork in the road. And that's a, probably going to be a very dangerous point because I don't know what else the response could be to Ukraine definitively publicly losing. So yeah. Like even in the, uh, by the way, this, um, I've been offline for most of the day, so I didn't see this, but apparently this um, report about Burns offering this potential uh, settlement plan, that report was in a Swiss newspaper at first, the, like the, one of the main newspapers in Switzerland, and then was reposted essentially or summarized by this German newspaper, and it's trickled out from there. So that's sort of interesting because these are, these are like, these aren't fringe um, They're not fringe, and they're interlinked stories in that if Burns was making this offer, the offer might have been the 20%. So, right. I mean, I don't know. It, it, I think it all shows that it, it's not putting any indications of, of Ukraine winning, which is all you ever hear. So, right. So, I mean, I'll again, on, and here's another, but, but one, just one more uh, point sure. on this, Andrew, because I think you're right. So if you look at that, there was a political article that came out last night in, in anticipation of this briefing that was supposedly, uh, supposed to be happening with um, the House Armed Services Committee and these uh, Pentagon slash intelligence officials uh, where they were like expressing doubts as to whether Crimea could be militarily retaken, right? And um, there's a quote from Mike Rogers, who's the chair of the committee, um, who's one of these, you know, just kind of more classic prototypical Republican hawks that just so happen to also run every committee in the Republican majority now. Um, so there's not a whole, like, a lot of uh, diversity there in terms of the Republicans are and McCarthy are uh, choosing to put in positions of power that actually uh, make a difference. Um, what a surprise. But he was saying that, you know, the, he said something, he said, I, I can find the quote, but he said, you know, the war has got to, we have to, this war has got to be over with by summer. So what does that mean? Because if we're saying that Nonsense. the war, that any gains made by Russia, if kind of codified with a peace deal, means that Russia has won, Right. Or in other words, without driving Russia out of all the territory, at the very least that it has captured since the invasion started last February, if they are allowed to retain any of that territory, then they've won if that's kind of made permanent or semi-permanent through a ceasefire arrangement. Then how are they saying that victory is going to be uh, achieved by summer if – Russia is massing all these forces and has now these incredibly more fortified um, defensive lines. It seems like if that's your sort of, um, you know, uh, non-negotiable objective, meaning driving them out of all that territory, then you'd need to have an extra layer of force added, right, which could only be through the U.S. slash NATO. Yeah. and Um, So it's almost like the prime – I think you're right in that, like, the logic of what they're – kind of setting out as the way that this must ultimately transpire seems to probably necessitate more full-fledged NATO intervention, but they don't really talk about it as a viable... They don't really talk about that in overt terms, even though it seems to be where their logic is, like, just inescapably leading toward. Well, but that's why this fantasy of Ukraine is winning is so important to them, right? 
because they don't have to go down that dark path of that realization then. I think that's key to it all. And that's key to why a, 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 a successful public Russian offensive that, say, took back moot, made a push through the south. You know, they start moving. Ukraine starts falling back. It's chaotic. What's going on? I thought Ukraine was going to have an offensive. Now what? Yeah, what What now? It, that We could be facing that reality. It's not unrealistic. And if you were looking at the details, it all lines up to that. So I don't see... But they can't. I just don't see how they can sell that because Americans get have to go die. It's not going to be Poland. It's not going to be Germany. Germany's not sending. They can't. I was listening to Scott Ritter talk about how they can't even outfit a garrison or whatever. But the point is, Europe's not going in without America. And are we going to go send Americans <clears throat> to die in Ukraine? Have we really had that discussion? I don't think so. Well, I mean, why couldn't it be Poland? Not saying that Poland would be able to unilaterally, you know, you know, declare war or something mm. and invade, like, without other parties being involved. But, you know, you could see Poland being the, the front troops. line battalions or something if there were to be this yeah, incursion or something, right? I'm saying there are U.S. troops in Poland. So say Poland goes in and they yeah. enter as party to the war and Russia starts hammering Polish territory. Well, there's U.S. troops there. They're stationed in Poland. So what What yeah. now? I mean, that leads to World War. <laughs> I, I, I met them I, myself. I <laughs> yeah, you were out there uh, much uh, maligned <laughs> to many right. people you were out there. But yeah, I just I don't see a way where U.S. blood doesn't get spilled if NATO goes in, and I don't see that as something that the U.S. would accept because they know they won't, the public won't accept that because they don't even want to talk. They won't even talk about it seriously because they know it's not going to happen. It's not going to. They can't sell it. They need. They would need some kind of serious. I don't even want to speculate. You know what I mean? But. Um, I just don't think it's realistic at this point. So, uh, and I, it's weird to me because I feel like if I had this conversation with Richard, it would be like talking to someone who's like thinks I'm insane because <laughs> apparently he thinks they have better technology and they're more accurate or something. It's just like okay, I don't know. It, it, it's 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 interesting. I'll, I'll leave it. I, I know what you mean in that. Like just in general, a lot of what we're being told like doesn't add up to any sort of cohesive right conclusion. Um, it's just sort of, you know, fill in the blanks and see what shakes out. Like, that's <laughs> about as much clarity as we're given as to, like, what to expect. Um, so, anyway. All right. Thanks, uh, thanks as always, Andrew. And uh, let's go to Arashk. Arashk, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, if you're there. Yes. Thank you. I'm a really, really big fan. I finally made it on one of these calling calls. I uh, just had two questions. I hope you can answer them. Uh, one is just more personal. Uh, ever since Glenn Greenwald has made his show, it's been just amazing. And I want to see if you ever had an idea or thought to make something similar to that, because I think you and Glenn just kept me, like, not going insane during Russiagate. And it just, I wish you could, you know, make something like that because it's really great and you're really, really great. Well, yeah, thank you. Um, you know, there are, uh, I'm a, I am in talks for something potentially along those lines. I don't want to spill the beans quite yet. But, uh, yeah, the answer is that there is something 
in the works that uh, could potentially sort of uh, <laughs> meet the uh, the craving that you say that you say that you have. So just stay tuned, I guess. Okay, thank you very much. Because I mean, you two just kept me sane and kind of Jamie Dore because I do disagree a lot with him on a lot of stuff. But the Russia Gate was just amazing. Just I was going insane because I saw like we're like getting into this kind of liberal fascism or something. It's just becoming worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, and like you know, I wouldn't say I agree with Jamie Dore on everything either, or that we have you know styles that are necessarily one of the, the same, but. There were so few outlets with, uh, you know, a significant audience where you could put forward a countervailing perspective on those like n- nonstop sort of bombshell blockbuster Russiagate developments that were all being framed in exactly the same way with exactly the same sort of like unfounded presuppositions during the Trump years, um, and especially not enough venues to do that if you weren't just doubting the Russiagate developments from a sheer partisan like pro-Trump perspective which also can miss the mark right so um, for uh, whatever you know disagreements one might have with Jimmy Dore if you actually are valuing or if you were if you were sort of uh, in search of a an alternate perspective on what had been like the most kind of dominant narrative in American politics for several years he gave an opening for people to express those views and share sort of information with a different uh, spin on it. And, you know, I made use of that when I, when I could. And I also think, you know, it's all, it's more sort of important than ever really to get a rational understanding of what the function of that whole Russiagate saga really was, because look how it's influenced American foreign policy. I mean, I don't know if you saw that, um, Columbia Journalism Review retrospective that just came out a few days ago on uh, the media's coverage of Russiagate, but it's it's incredible. It's incredibly comprehensive and exhaustively comprehensive, actually, um, and goes through in like meticulous detail which stories were presented in which way and how it was done. Like even sometimes in full knowledge on the part of the journalist that it didn't actually add up to what they were saying. It added up to, and um, you know. With, especially with Trump, you know, at least appearing to be running for president again, it's going to stay a live issue. And it's, you know, the, the premises that undergird Russia Gator, premises which today are used to bolster the sort of maximalist pro-intervention and this sort of policy stance with regard to Ukraine, because it's a carryover of, at least for domestic U.S. purposes, the image that was crafted of Putin as this global exporter of authoritarianism and fascism and who subverts American democracy and what have you. And so therefore all the more reason that he needs to be opposed to the hilt. Um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, there's a reckoning that is necessary for with Russia gate. That isn't just about sort of clarifying the past, but also like clarifying like the current dynamics that stem from Russiagate that now are contributing to the, you know, foreign policy miasma that we're all sort of engulfed in. Yes, yes, I absolutely agree. It's just that ever since um, the Twitter files and all that stuff, especially like uh, the recent thing with um, Matt Typey that it came out like that they knew they were lying and it's like, oh, was it something Hamilton 68? I mean, it's just crazy. So because it's still all coming out, I just wish that people like you and him can like cover this stuff because it's like more insanity. Yeah, the Hamilton 68 dashboard, you know, that was 
such an obvious fraud at the time. I mean, I went through my own Twitter history and some of the stuff that I had written in 2018 when that Hamilton 68 dashboard was just being cited left and right as an authority in media reports on like what Russian bots were doing. I mean, some of the most stupid ones that kind of just, and even you could tell that internally at Twitter and maybe with even within the um, you know German Marshall Fund, which uh, runs that Hamilton 68 dashboard or did, thought that like things were getting a bit too absurd for them to even really be um <laughs> you know content with anymore when we were told that because on the day of the Parkland shooting like the school shooting at the school in Florida in February 2018 um that uh Russian bots were responsible for the fact that the word shooting and gun and Florida were trending on social media which obviously just makes no sense at all, and like just <laughs> not that it made any sense even before that shooting, but it kind of added to the absurd hilarity of why of this being relied on as any kind of credible source for supposed Russian interference in the American political system. Um, and so, yeah, I mean that was a, such a blatant fraud for quite a while. But Taibbi, um, in putting out those materials relating to. In, Twitter's internal discussions just, you know, is the icing on the cake um, and uh, really ought to prompt media outlets who went uncritically with that Hamilton 68 dashboard as their, like, primary source for telling the public what to look out for in terms of what the, you know, Russian state was up to in its manipulation of American political attitudes. Um, those outlets ought to be paying a price of some sort, you would think, reputationally for propagating fraud, but they're not going to. I mean, they're going to ignore it. It just fell upwards is what I think what you say is very true. It's just ridiculous. Um, uh, I guess you answered the first one. And the second one is, I mean, recently in the last just like three days, been so many ridiculous articles around China. Like there was an article about how American Marines are preparing for a future war with China, like just saying it. And how there's a new arc built around China with this new military base in northern Philippines. And, like, they made the whole reopening of the Solomon Island embassy a thing and not the balloon thing, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's just, like, they're literally preparing for a war with China, like, 2025. I never would have imagined that ever. It is so stupid. I mean, at least Ukraine-Russia stuff, I mean, you can see Russia invaded. But, like, China stuff is just so deliberately provoking. It's just... Horrible. I mean, I really, what do you think about that? Because you did talk about it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was this General Mike Minahan, who's the head of the Air Mobility Command in the I Air know, Force. did you see what he wrote? It was yeah. like a. Well, yeah, he put out a memo. He put out a memo. Horrible. He says that he predicts that my, he says my gut tells me we will fight in, in 2025, whatever the, yeah, that yeah, means, or why he chose that particular date. But he gave his whole rationale for it. And he said, you know, aim for the head. And, you know, unrepentant like lethality really, really matters most. So, like I mean, really just think about – yeah, so my question is, so if it were – it came out that a Chinese four-star general or whatever the equivalent is was making these predictions about war breaking out with the U.S. by 2025, how do you think that would be interpreted? And that would be interpreted as part of – as just more evidence of China's bloodthirsty belligerence toward the U.S., right? And yet – you know, there's not really much cognizance at all of how that could be similarly interpreted now for this force. I mean, it's a four-star general. This is not just some grunt. 
mm-hmm. saying that they're preparing for war within two years. Um, and, you know, maybe even sooner. So, yeah, and then the, the policy trajectory aligns with that. You mentioned today, yeah, the Defense Secretary Austin, when he was putting together, um, you know, potential options for Biden with regard to the supposed Chinese spy balloon, <coughs> he was physically in the Philippines uh, because now the U.S. is going to get access to four uh, additional bases in the Philippines. So that's, you know, four more bases that are basically going to be run by you would think. Uh, you know, all for the purpose of supposedly uh, countering or con- containing China. So, yeah, I mean, there's um, – but the thing is, because this is being done, one, one complicating factor is that this is done by a Democratic administration, so you're not going to have any, like, anti-war pushback at all from the usual suspects. And also the opposition party I is convinced that, China, that, that Biden's actually corruptly enthralled to China. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to object to any of it. So it all just sort of, you know, mushes together into this um, intractable, like hawkish consensus going in one direction, which is the direction that the general outlined. Maybe he was too blunt about it, and maybe he shouldn't have said it uh, that in a way that could be um, for public consumption. But um, yeah, all signs point to what he's actually what he's articulating actually is what the government is gearing up for. I know it's horrible because, like, um, before Biden, it was like Russia was like the Hitler in Nazi Germany of the Democrats, and China was that for uh, Republicans. But now, Democrats are pretty on that, like, getting there at least, like, policy wise. They might not talk about it as much. So if like a, tr- a Trump or DeSantis or whatever comes, I mean, they're just going to full on go to war with China, and the Democrat is doing it anyway. I just, it's astonishing how. Like accelerated was because this all started under Obama with was it TPP or something, um, and trying to like economically contain China, and then accelerated with Trump with the like tariffs and all that kind of stuff and like literally calling uh, Taiwan's uh, president I think, um, but it's just gone crazy with Biden. I would have never imagined it. I mean, it's just it's so. I mean, is it because like China doesn't have that many nukes? That they're going for it because if it wasn't like Russia's nukes, like they they would have definitely like gone to war with Russia because they would just love it. It's really the nukes that everyone is afraid of. Well, um, the nuclear posture review that was put out by the Pentagon in um, October it envisages a scenario that the U.S. must be prepared for, and which is like guiding U.S. nuclear policy now, which is for a simultaneous nuclear confrontation between the U.S. and two nuclear-armed powers at once, like at the same time. So they're envisioning Mm -hmm. that the U.S. needs to be now prepared militarily in terms of its own nuclear um, stockpile and nuclear uh, readiness for a um, simultaneous two-way confrontation, or I guess, you know, three-way war, more or less, with... um, Two other nuclear armed powers, that being Russia and, and China. Um, so, yeah. And then also, in terms of the bipartisan nature of this, which I agree would probably be ramped up in its intensity if there were a Republican administration, but it's kind of going pretty um, rapidly in its acceleration now anyway. I mean, yeah. the House has this new committee that it put out that it's um, putting 
together right now called the Select Committee on the Strategic Competition Between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. By the way, they used the word Chinese, they used the term Chinese Communist Party because it's like more pejorative when, than what the actual term is, which is Communist Party of China. I don't know why they're so dead set on that particular terminology other than, yeah. But, you know, it's the most, it's a, it's, it's a bipartisan committee. I mean, today it was just announced that Mickey Sherrill is going to be on it. She's a Democrat. Rasha Krishnamurthy is on it. She's a Democrat. The chairman is Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, who's like one of the most hardcore, just like Bush era, Bush throwback Republicans. He's the uh, chairman. So, um, yeah, it's a bipartisan thing. And they're, uh, they're basically, you know, the uh, in-house congressional think tank for just ramping up hostility with, with China. And they, in you know, Russia is useful in that regard because it. Um, for one thing, is a way to – it's like a proxy argumentatively for Democrats to understand why they need to be on board with ramping up hostility toward China because China is being depicted as this ally of Russia, of course, right? And even there was a report within the past week or two that the U.S. is investigating whether China is providing military t- technology to Russia um, in contravention of U.S. sanctions. And so, yeah, it's just uh, – you know, this is one of the reasons why uh, it's always useful to be aware of when people are gloating about some sort of, you know, uh, angelic uh, bipartisan consensus on a certain issue because that tends to be the most uh, the surefire uh, red flag as to it being a uh, insane yeah. policy consensus. I just wanted to ask. Thank you so much. I just want one small question. Um, since there's been a lot of stuff in Iran, which is where I'm from. Um, do you think they're going to like try to create some kind of really horrible thing in the future? Because um, I'm kind of two-sided on this. I mean, I hate, don't like the government, but then I feel like the people against us sometimes even worse, um, which reminds me of 1979. Like, the government was bad, but then the people that are against us were horrible, too. Uh, like, could they make this into a Syria somehow or Libya? Because there are people that, like, just say go kill whoever is like um like a religious leader like 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 a what do you call it? like a mom or whatever and it's just kind of ridiculous stuff because like they just I don't know because like it's not a like as powerful they make it a boogeyman and it doesn't have nukes like Russia of course and they make the whole thing the idea that they might have nukes but it's ridiculous they don't but do you think like they would try to somehow destabilize Iran? Because I do think in a couple of months there's going to be like food protests because it's really horrible there, the cost of food. I mean, people now like ration like bread even. It's that bad. But, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not a question of if they're trying to destabilize, destabilize Iran. It's like how much are they going to yeah. increase their efforts to destabilize Iran? I mean, the whole point of sanctions I mean, the, the only logical endpoint of the sanction regimes that the U.S. has on countries around the world um, is to ultimately lead to the conditions whereby the government of that country will be overthrown. That's why it has. That's why there's 60 plus year sanctions on Cuba. That's why the sanctions on Venezuela are as they are. Um, now Russia is the most sanctioned country in and before that human history, and then same similar with. Iran's. I mean, that's the whole point, right? So, um, because well, no, although they create the humanitarian thing. suffering, that's not going to be the objective on, onto itself just to make people suffer, right? It's that the suffering yeah. will ultimately lead to a point where the there will be enough discontent with the presiding government that it will be weakened and then 
deposed. So, yeah, I mean, that clearly is what the objective is. Um, and, you know, even if it's not the most, like, acute short-term objective, it's the long-term, it's like the inescapable logic of what the long-term objective has to be. And now they're bringing more people into that coalition of people who are pursuing such an objective with Russia now serving as this political sort of um, um, device to convince people who might not have otherwise been in favor of overthrowing Iran for its own sake, now brought into the fold because they view it as culpable for Russia's activity in Ukraine. So, yeah, they're, they're broadening that, that kind of you know, regime change coalition. And I, I agree with you that, you know... <laughs> There's no reason to think – there's no uh, – I mean I could imagine if I was Iranian that I would have very mixed feelings about it as well because I don't want to be seen as lending support to the current government. But you know, that's not really even the point. It, it's, it's the, the point is like what is the United States government doing with respect to its you know, um, efforts to eliminate a enemy government? Yeah, because the fear for me is like people really formed really gullible like stuff and it's just like – I don't know, like a lot of stuff are really symbolic is they don't like see like like the whole Masi Alinja thing. I just like really love her, blah blah blah. And like she really just speaks to the tune of whoever is the highest pair. I mean she's just horrible. Um, like she met with uh Fran Francis Emmanuel Macron. Like she's just and she's even said like it's okay if America like does like a tactical attack or something, whatever like that on Iran. Like she's just horrible. And she's like this revolutionary leader, and it's because she's a really good speaker. Like she's really passionate. Um, I don't know. It's just it's. I feel like it could be a duping thing, like forty years ago, you know, something like that. You know? Yeah, it, I mean, the amazing. I mean, I said this earlier, but the most amazing part of her being this um, figurehead now, who is constantly feted across Western media. Speaker. Is that she's? I mean, you can go look it up. It's not hard. It's just a quick Google away. She's a presenter for the voice of america right. which is the yes. american you know you know explicitly propagandistic media operation worldwide i mean mm -hmm. the fact that that's not disclosed when she does these media appearances and mm -hmm. she's just presented as this benign bold sort of truth teller who has no uh, motivations other than to just let the world be aware of like what oppression is happening in iran it's just amazing. I don't doubt her sincerity necessarily, but like if she's being funded by the American government, <laughs> that needs to be disclosed in these appearances, you would think, but apparently not because, you know, that's not really what's prioritized in terms of the uh, ethics of covering this issue. The ethics are just, you know, showing how bad the Iranian government is and how necessary it is for there to be some sort of mass effort to ensure its demise. Yeah, thank you. I... All right. Thanks, Arash. Appreciate Thank you very it. Very much. Thank you. Bye. All right. Uh, hey, Gator. How's it going? Yeah, not bad, mate. Yourself? Hanging in there. Cool. Um, look, I'll try and keep it relatively quick. Um, weapon, weapons-wise, um, the the thing that I'm one of the things that's obvious seems obvious to me is that if you look at strategically, so you know the U.S. has been involved in and NATO has been involved in training and building up Ukraine since, you know, before 2014, in fact, and that's effectively given them um, a, a significant 
military capability, hence why why they're able to fight. But since the wars, the invasions basically kicked off, the strategic deployment of weapons isn't strategic, it's tactical. They've literally pumped in a load of javs and all the rest of this shit first, because that was easy to get their hands on. And then they've pumped in the next round of stuff and the next round of stuff and the next round of stuff. It's not being, it's not strategically done because the lead time to supply this kit and training isn't, isn't running ahead. You know, the, uh, the sink, the single Patriot missile with 90 kilometer rate effective radius. Single battery. Country in Europe. Yeah. Right. The sink, that single system, the training for that has only started last month in the U S so they didn't have a strategic intent to put that in because they would have started training somebody on it six months earlier and then they would have deployed it when they wanted to. And the same with all of the tank systems and stuff now that are coming in and, and whatever else, right? So it, as I said to you before, I think this, the, war, the war has to be militarily won. It doesn't. It should not go to negotiations now. It needs to be proven either Russia hasn't got what it takes and it's got its ass kicked, which I don't think is going to happen, or Russia kicks ass and basically uh, and basically proves the point that it's been trying to make right now inside that if if the us the us has now got into this position where if it puts m1s in um and actually end up actually fighting in theater and any of them get significantly damaged that tells the world that the m1 is not a particularly great tank to buy and the same for the challenger and the leopard right because they're all being operation tested whereas most of these pieces of equipment have never been operationally tested against a competent uh, enemy iraq was not a competent enemy you know um at all in in terms of tank tank and ground warfare if you read the accounts of what they were doing and um, and what they had and so in a, in a way it, it makes, I would argue, although this sounds strange, I want to see this kit deployed because that will again provide a definitive answer to these ambiguous rhetorical statements that somehow, A, we've got the best weapons, B, that's why other people should buy them, and C, that they will definitively swing a war. Well, you know, just, just a quick point on that because this is actually discussed to a degree in that Rand Corporation report that I was talking about yeah. earlier. It basically kind of spells out the different scenarios whereby a war can be brought to a conclusion, right? So absolute victory is one option. There are very, you know, relatively few instances of that happening throughout history with the exceptions being, you know, the victory that the Allies achieved over Germany and um, Japan in World War II. That was an absolute victory. Uh, but beyond that, not many examples you can really point to. And yet absolute victory seems like what the logic all de uh, kind of demands must happen w with regard to Russia if you, Ukraine were to achieve victories in, in this sense. Mm -hmm. Even if you were to say that the parameters for victory in Ukraine are to expel Russia from the territory that it acquired post-February 2022, so even leaving aside Crimea, right, or even maybe parts of the Donbass. Mm -hmm. That would, still would not be really an absolute victory of the kind now being envisaged because yeah. it leaves aside the question of Russia, you know, retaining and potentially building up again the capacity to once, once more make incursions into those territories, right? So the absolute victory of the kind being envisaged could only be achieved if Russia's 
capacity to ever make an incursion into those territories again was also eliminated, hmm. which I think is why, you know, you see it being bandied about that there's going to be some like tribunal put into place to try Russian officials for war crimes and even Putin himself, which I got to think is only possible if there's regime change effectuated in Russia. I don't know how else you can think that the U.S. is going to prosecute and imprison Putin. Um, so, you know, but that's a hugely ominous thing to for any American official to utter. So they only discuss it like in this sort of kind of illusion uh, with these illusions and these illusions with an A meaning uh, and mm. these sorts of underhanded references like Victoria Newland when she testified before the um, Senate uh, last week said that, you know, the U S is, you know, as we speak, figuring out how to um, put together a judicial mechanism that would be empowered to prosecute Putin and imprison him. And this was actually also uh, enshrined in the, um, the suite of defense related legislative measures that were passed, you know, without anybody really paying much attention other than me, I guess, and maybe a very handful, a small handful of others uh, last December. Um, and it makes sense, right? Because let's say, you know, a miracle happens tomorrow and Ukraine drives Russia out of all the territory that it had maintained since February of last year. doesn't mean that Russia then couldn't then do another incursion in four months. And is that then absolute victory of the kind that Ukraine is saying is a non-negotiable uh, outcome? No, I mean, that the only way that seems that that outcome could be achieved is to fundamentally change the nature of the regime in Russia. Hence these, I think, growing calls, whether they're explicit or not, for measures that at least logically must amount to regime change in some fashion. So I think that's... Um, really the only sort of – that's how the victory that's being envisaged could only be achieved if we're taking at their word what these – you know, this, you know, the anti-Russia warring party claims its objectives are. But even if that was, if that was possible, right, there's two, two obvious problems are that um, meaningfully applying a judgment to a foreign nation is basically impossible, which is why the US has never been prosecuted for any of its war crimes, even though it's committed war crimes every time it's committed a war, because none of those wars have basically been legal. And obviously, you know, even the Bosnian-Serbian conflict is now being dredged up again as being totally illegal, yet having engaged mechanisms which legitimize what Russia has done with referenda and so on and so forth, but the war itself was completely uh, false. I, I worked with a guy who was what's called a JTAC, so he was a forward fo uh, force uh, controller for air power in that theatre, and I was asking him how did he find his experience whilst he was in theatre compared to the media reporting of it, and he said the media reports were totally false. There was a false flag um, um, Art, not artillery, a mortar strike, where either one side claimed it was the other side in order to engage, to initiate some support in a combat environment setup. And when the guy I was, talk I was talking to went in and did the analysis and counter-barratory and tra trajectory analysis, it was turned out it was a false flag. And he, and he, and, and it was reported completely falsely reported in the press. 
And then he had a British politician ringing you up saying, okay, mate, can I say this, 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 and this? And the bloke was saying, no, because that's not what happened. I'm not telling you that. I'm officially briefing you. This is what we've found. If you say anything else, it's not come from me. You know, and the, the rhetoric that they wanted to put out about just that war is completely false compared to the post, the historic analysis of it. So, and obviously you've got this mechanism of the ICC, Russia, Russia US and China don't um, recognise them anyway. Um, only Britain does, and Britain um, has has never had anyone in there of any meaning anyway. So, so these forums are kind of. The, the, I think that the, the, the US is going to use it as like it's like leaving a little. It's li it's a little dirty protest. It's like walking out of somebody's shit house party and top decking the toilet in in protest, right? Which 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 for the people who don't understand what the term means, it means taking a shit in the system of the toilet so people don't find it for a long time. Um, and uh, I think that's kind of the, the way I would look at this um, drive to try to prosecute Putin. But also, even if you manage to achieve regime change inside Russia and then prosecuted the administration for this war, I don't think that's going to have credibility in a large amount of the Russian population because the Russian population will be just be looking at the regime change as direct, obvious Western usurpation through a fifth column which is well known that, that, that that's what the US has done. And so that government's going to struggle with legitimacy anyway, because it will be so grossly inorganic, do you not think? No, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and that's why <laughs> the specter of a nuclear exchange really ought not to be so uh, smugly dismissed as the proponents of the current kind of policy paradigm often tend to do because if regime change really is what is being pursued as is alluded to all the time and as is sort of what the only inference could be if you actually examine what the sort of policy apparently is, then it means that the, the threat actually is existential to Russia in terms of the continuation of its mm. government. And that you know is usually set out as what the criteria would have to be for Russia to consider initiating some sort of nuclear uh, attack. So is that the likeliest outcome? I tend to doubt it, but I don't know. And neither do the people who are so zealously following this particular policy trajectory. Um, just because they, they apparently think that you know Putin has now been proven to have been bluffing this whole time. like Because there have been red lines that have been crossed and so, therefore, there are no real red lines, and you know we shouldn't um, self-deter in terms of like the amount of support we're willing to extend to Ukraine. Well, who are you to say that there's actually no red line? And if there is one, if any red line does exist, it probably would have to be the like existential, <laughs> the uh, existential vibe of the government. Like if Putin is actually on the verge of being uh, seized and prosecuted and imprisoned by the United States and thrown in a cell in Leavenworth or something, which is like what the U.S. is empowering itself to do if you actually look at the legislative text that was passed in December, um, at least in theory, then that seems pretty consistent with those potential scenarios that could actually be most likely to be thought of as justifying 
a nuclear uh, event. So who knows? But it's kind of pretty. It's more ominous than people I think are allowing for in their sort of blase attitude as to like what the implications are of this upgrade of U.S. arms provision. Like even if it doesn't make a much of, that much of a tactical difference in a, any individual instance. Um, the whole the logic behind it needs to also be sort of examined on its own terms because the logic seems to only lead toward regime changes regime changes the um, acceptable outcome but i mean i don't i don't find any of what what is being prosecuted as an advert a good advert for the, the west at all because it is literally laying bare the absolute deathly obsession with controlling everyone and everything on the US and vassal state terms, right? And so any 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 country looking around at this says, well, if I'm not in that club, then I'm going to definitely get fucked by these people. And this is absolutely the guarantee of it now. And I don't see how this politically, geopolitically bolsters any of the furtherance of the US hegemonistic um, interests on a, on a, on a semi-cooperative basis. It just, it just confirms to everybody that you need to shit yourself because you will get shot, right? If you don't toe the line. And I, I see that as an utterly childish way to run an empire, particularly in the latter stages of it, because de-dollarization is just increasing. You know, it, that is an accelerating pace in obvious terms. You know, this is something that was talked about over the last 10 to 15 years by fairly specialist, um, financial outlets and now it is it is it is essentially mainstream it is like you have to be a super idiot to not be aware of the idea that the world is de-dollarizing in multiple ways at multiple speeds and so one one way of looking at this is that you're looking at the, the flailing and the tail lashing and the snashing the, the the mashing of teeth of 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 an empire in its late stages and obviously that can go out with a whimper or it can go out with a bang and i, I think it's fair for you to point out that it shouldn't be taken that 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 should not be taken lightly. But when it comes to actually writing your laws to say you're going to hold this guy uh, in contempt and make label him a war criminal, it doesn't mean to say that you can actually meaningfully get into his country and prosecute um, any kind of change, because you know you're still using the same channels that exist for for regime change, which are the fifth column the sponsoring of political um, movements and then basically the agitation, the standard standard kind of CIA agitation, but you wouldn't be able to do meaningfully more than that. And then it's up to the, and it's up to the Russian regime to essentially use its own internal security services to stamp all of that out, which is pretty much what goes on all the time, as far as I can tell. So I, I see where you're coming from, but I also sort of, struggle to take the US seriously in it, in actually what it can actually end up getting a result in. Can it get a result in change in, in, in regime change in Russia? I, I'm struggling to believe that. Well, I'm not saying it can or can't. I mean, that would be a tall order, but it seems like that's clearly the design. And I also don't think it's prudent to underestimate what the US <laughs> can achieve if it sets its mind to it as the still reigning global... Uh, military uh, superpower. So, you know, at the very least, best not to be blasé because, uh, you know, 
a year and a half ago, what's going on in Ukraine now, at least, at least in terms of the U.S. commitment of armaments and of, you know, quote-unquote intelligence sharing and, and all the rest in a hot war against Russia, complete with nuclear brinksmanship and so forth, would have been pretty unimaginable. Um, and so I tend to have a rule of thumb where what seems imaginable, unimaginable in the present um, ought not to be ruled out as something that we're all going to be forced to viscerally imagine um, in uh, real life in about six months. But anyway, thanks, Gator. Mm. Yep, and Gator, uh, you're last up, it appears, and then we'll close out with you. Hey, Michael. Uh, no, I've uh, listened to a few podcasts with yourself and uh, Richard Hanna, and I uh, really appreciate the, like, thoughtful debate and, like, great just points and counterpoints on both sides of all of it. Um, well, I appreciate that. Thanks. One thing that I have a little bit noticed, and I, I've been um, – in listening to your your prior history um, through uh, Richard Hanania, Hanania, maybe I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. <laughs> Sorry, Hanania, I think it's, it is, but man, who cares? We don't need to pronounce his name. Yeah. Right? on me, on me, on me. Um, you, you you seem to have a very large skepticism of when the U.S. sends weapons to Ukraine. And the U.S. claims they're in a defensive posture, which I think there's actually like, I think your claim is not illegitimate. I think there's like a lot of history to point back and be like, yeah, look at that, look at that. But I also think you sometimes have to look at like, okay, well, what is the weapon of choice here in 2022 or excuse me, 2023 and say, it's not exactly an offensive weapon as it's considered in the modern warfare place today. Um, and to be specific, the HIMARS, the best we know, they're restricted to 50 miles. Today, as far as we know, these M1A1s are not going to be even available for another like six months at best and even those they sound very like it sounds very much like the pentagon likes the the capability of a of a m1a1 or m1a2 but like the logistics just simply like the ukrainians can't handle because more it's a it's a byproduct of the tank itself not really any like you know it's not a statement on the ukrainians it's just more they're just logistically challenging um but i but i've noticed a kind of tone through your critique where they more seen weapons that are i would argue are very defensive in nature or at least the U.S. has been very defensive in nature, but you deem them to be very offensive in nature. And I would agree with you. At the end of the day, a handgun is a handgun, in the sense that it, like, it shoots an offensive weapon to kill someone. That's the point of a gun. Where do you come down on these M1, A2, or the tanks, the HIMARS, uh, the Patriot systems, 
Um, I don't know. Take your choice. Well, it's not so much that I'm outright asserting as fact that any particular weapon system is actually offensive as opposed to, to defensive. I'm simply pointing out that there isn't really an intelligible distinction between offensive and defensive in the first place. And so defensive... Well, right. So that's the point. I mean, defensive weapons are the weapons that the U.S. or whoever is supplying them don't want to be perceived as offensive because that would be uh, politically risky or that would be strategically in conflict with what they're claiming their purposes in the war. Um, So that's the point I've been trying to make. And just in that, like the uh, insistence that there's some sort of, you know, uh, defined theoretical distinction between offensive and defensive weapons is just sort of nonsensical when you really drill down into it. And I'm not alone in saying this. I mean, there was a Wall Street Journal report as recently, uh, as early in the war as, um, I want to say May, where it basically uh, chronicled how the U.S. was no longer even really pretending to abide by this like supposed stricture about only sending offensive and defensive weaponry given the rocket systems. And, you know, there have been, um, there have been instances of Ukraine launching, sorry, of, of Ukraine carrying out operations within territorial Russia already earlier in the war. I mean, Bel- Belgorod, which is, you know, near the border, which you could say it's a legitimate target, whatever, that's fine, um, where, you know, Ukraine launched like a helicopter strike of some sort on one of the um, facilities there. So are you going to say that an attack on territorial Russia is inherently defensive? Like, you could say it's warranted. You could say it's legitimate or necessary. That's fine. That's arguable. But to say it's defensive stretches the bounds of what is a, quote, defensive weapon so far that doesn't make any sense. Um, and you have, you know, long-range drone strikes on... Now, um, strategic uh, air bases, uh, air bases inside, uh, you know, 300 miles from the Ukraine border that house parts of Russia's strategic nuclear fleet. I mean, is that a defensive strike? I mean, you could say that anything is defensive, really, if your bounds of what constitutes a defensive weapon go that far. And so, you know, it, it, with, with the U.S. basically single-handedly subsidizing all Ukraine military operations in the, you know, in and being the decisive variable in why Ukraine still exists as a state, you know, like running its military operations really uh, at the, um, at the, at bottom, you know, uh, clinging to this distinction no longer really makes any sense if it ever did. Um, So that's really been my point on that distinction. Even look at Michael Coffin, who's this, um, I don't know if you're aware of him, but he's the, no, 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 yeah, yeah. I I love Michael Coffin. Yeah. but he, he makes I, the same, he, he makes the same point about how – hold, hold on. Let me finish. Michael Kaufman, I was just listening to a podcast that he did within the past yeah. couple of days. He made the exact same point that I've been making forever, which is that the distinction between an offensive and a defensive weapon is basically just what the sender of the weapon wants to politically characterize it as. So that's my point. Yeah. Totally. Michael, 100%. I love it. It's all, like – have you ever heard the uh, the it's a theoretical term used often in the West, particularly in the U.S., called a, a like a red team strategy? Like that that theory for our users 
our, our folks that are listening in is actually an old school Israeli term where it means the Israelis were attacked, but there was someone in the National Security District that didn't raise the prospect that, like, what if we all agreed on the same thing? Meaning, like, you need someone to counteract what that effect is. And, Michael, I agree with all the points you brought up, which is only the point that it's like, what is the thing we're not thinking of? Um yeah, and let me just let me just let me, let me just quickly quote to you. This is the Wall Street Journal, April fourteenth. Okay. Yep. Um, here's the first paragraph. And remember, this is you know a month and a half into the war, so this is very early on. Yeah, yeah, As Ukraine prepares, two months. Okay, so you know under two months. February twenty-fourth. As Ukraine prepares to resist a new Russian military assault in the east, it is likely it will it likely will be doing so with weapons equipment the U.S. once considered too risky to provide Kiev, highlighting how the line between offensive and defensive assistance has blurred in recent weeks. So that's not, okay, so if the line was already blurred in April, then the line's been blurred beyond recognition to the point where it may as well no longer exist by February of 2023. That's basically my point. Um, So it's not not me being skeptical towards these distinctions. It's like just Skepticism being like the necessary um, yes. conclusion yes. if you're using any degree of rationality in assessing what that distinction supposedly means. Yes, uh, 100%. I, I couldn't agree more with you, Michael. And, and, and I'll even one-up you on that. That's assuming whoever wa- wrote that Wall Street article or February 24th of 2021, that there was ever even a clear line of what distinguishes this. The U.S. and Russia have never been in this close of a circumstance. There was Vietnam. There was, like, the Soviet Union. But, like, we're now in a new Cold War-ish thing. It's not really a Cold War, you know, for obvious reasons. But it's, like, this, like, tangent thing where we have a crazy person over in Russia who knows he can't get too far out of line. Because NATO will clearly overtake Russia, but NATO does not want to activate a hot kinetic war. So it's a very strange dynamic we're in. Yeah, I I agree. Um, You know, I think, and I've talked about this before with Richard, I don't know if you've heard it, but I'm still kind of working under under the assumption that Lloyd Austin was speaking accurately about what U.S. policy is geared toward when he said in April of last year that the U.S. will seek to make it such that uh, Russia is weakened uh, so that it cannot carry out an operation like this again. And that's consistent with these kind of incremental, kind of gradual escalations in the armament provided um, without – with trying to, you know – Stay below the threshold without with trying to stay below the threshold of initiating outright direct kinetic warfare. Um, now the danger there, of course, is that maybe the threshold sorry, gets sorry, crossed oh, through some other. Michael, you threw out a name that I don't think uh, myself or anyone. Who, who is Michael? Was it Austin? Lloyd Austin. Lloyd Austin, the who, Defense Secretary. Who, who of the is US. Lloyd Austin? 
He's the U.S. Defense Secretary. Sorry, I, oh, wait, I, wait, wait, I assume on, that most people would know him. Is that the same person that said his top priority as the chief of the Pentagon was equity? Is that is that the same um, person? I don't know. Maybe he said that. I, I'm not sure. I'm sure he, I'm pretty that sure was part he of the talking points. That. Okay, well, whatever he said about defense. equity, he also said this. No, 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 no. I'm pretty sure he did say that was the national – because that is also what the commander in chief said. So okay. that's an How interesting that contradiction. How is that a contradiction? No, no, no. You, you're claiming is like Russia, the military side is like something the U.S. should be worrying about. The commander in chief, last time I checked, Biden won the election. He dictated to his lieutenants, his cabinet, make equity the top priority. Okay. So how are you, like, why? I'm not understanding what you're what claiming the inconsistency Everything he is. should do, he should say, we are going to make equity ahead of Russia. Stop, full stop, it does not matter. Everything, stop right there. Whatever you say next, equity. That is literally what the commander-in-chief said. Follow orders. Okay, <laughs> I'm not really following, but uh, well, clearly you're right, not well, following orders. Wh whose orders am I under? You're under no one's. What I'm saying is Lloyd Austin is reporting, in theory, to the commander in chief. Who's well, the I mean, Lloyd Austin is also under orders to carry out whatever U.S. operation is underway in Ukraine. So, however that. Yeah, well, kind of compares with the level of prioritization that he might have said in other quotes should apply to, like, the U.S. stressing so-called equity. I don't know. But uh, I don't think his prior statements on equity means that it's somehow, like, un That's an executive to just look order, at man. That's not my words. That's literally a presidential executive order. It's like Abraham Lincoln's executive order. So, and what does that mean ultimately then, that nobody should really pay attention to what the Pentagon is doing in Ukraine because it's all subordinate to the overriding imperative to bring about equity? I, I don't really get it. I don't get what your uh, point is. Yeah, I guess the ultimate point is we have a democracy, we elect a president, and, like, he's not who I voted for, but at the end of the day, if that's what, like, the Electoral College voted for – he does, he or she does have the right, has the right to fulfill a government, and people that fill that government should act upon the wishes of the commander in chief. I don't think this is crazy shit. Um, how, how it all fits together with Ukraine, I'm still not really clear on, but, um, all right, I no, guess we'll no, have no, to no. just yeah, uh, ponder right, what you've said here. Is ultimately the commander in chief has put two executive orders in conflict with each other. He he initially said on day one that equity for the Pentagon is the top priority of the armed forces of the United States. He is the commander in chief. We will put equity at the top foremost executive like priority. Second, 
we will stop Russia in defense of Ukraine. It becomes very difficult if you're trying to supply bullets and tanks. How do you, like, put those in congruence of each other? It only works if unless you just, like, are going to ignore what happened 18 months ago and say that that was not an executive order. Unfortunately, that's not how the law works, though, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, the actual, like, the practical implementation. Yes, the practical. Has right. really not, no necessary connection to what is claimed to be a priority. I mean, as far as I could tell in these executive orders, you know, there's an order in June of 2021 where it says, you know, by the order, by the power invested in me in order to strengthen the federal workforce by promoting diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility is hereby ordered as follows, blah, 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 blah. I mean, in these orders, it's not saying that, like, all other actions of the federal government must be in every instance subordinated to the need to achieve equity. Like, in other words, like, it would somehow make it inconsistent with, um, you know, sending arms to Ukraine or something. So I'm not, again, I'm, I'm, I'm hard pressed to figure out what the ultimate point is. I think it's just, you know, the, these are two sort of initiatives that are happening in, uh, in, in sort of conjunction with one another and like kind of are separate and apart from one another and don't even really need to be reconciled with one another in order to have, in order to be sort of two things that one can assess as the Pentagon 